This is the Danger Close Podcast, Beyond the Books, with me, Jack Carr. Welcome to the Danger Close Podcast, an Ironclad original presented by Navy Federal Credit Union. This is a rebroadcast of a conversation I had with Dean Stott. And Dean is a former SBS, that is British Special Boat Service Operator, security consultant, and after leaving the military, he also cycled the Pan-American Highway 14,000 miles in less than 100 days, and he's the first person to ever do that. Incredible guy. You can also catch him on the very popular TV series, SAS, Who Dares Wins Australia. So now, without further ado, Dean Stott. Thank you so much for doing this. I sincerely appreciate it. It's uh, it's the story. I mean, this is amazing. Your whole life story is incredible. So inspirational. Um, and yeah, I just kind of want to dive in with you on it and uh, can't wait to, I'm going to get up to the world record. I mean, jumping on a bike and going from the tip of South America all the way up to Alaska. I mean, insanity. Yeah. But before that, I mean, you started off and your, your beginning wasn't, uh, I mean, it was tough. I mean, you had, uh, the, the, it was a military upbringing. Yeah. And then uh, at, at some point, your parents split and you end up in a homeless shelter in a not very good part of the UK. Yeah. And so what was uh, what was that like growing up? Yeah, so yeah, as you touched on there, I, I, I born, my father was in the military. He was in the Royal Engineers. And so for us, life every three years, we would feel like we just got settled and then we'd upheave and then move to another military town. Uh, we, you know, we're very fortunate to go to like Germany. My sister was born in Germany, um, you know, Bradford, Oldershot, Tidworth. And we ended up living in Oldershot, which was the home of the British Army. So it's probably like being immersed in a in Fort Bragg, you know, everywhere you went. It was just right. it was just it was airborne. You know, you looked up in the sky, there was parachutists, there was the big balloon where the new the young airborne lads would be jumping. And it wasn't. It was actually strange to see people in civilian attire. Everyone was in military attire. And so I was really immersed in that environment. Um, my parents, uh, I, remember, I remember the day, clear as day, it was January the 1st, 1985. I was about, I was seven and a half at the time. And um, my mother woke me and my sisters up quite quietly. And I was very quiet and escorted us out of the house. And I remember walking through the front living room and I could see no blood on the fireplace, you know, the, the room was a mess. Still unsure what was going on. And my mother, you know, took me and my sisters to the train station. And we ended up traveling north to Manchester, where my mother originated. And it was only then when we got to Manchester that my mom told me that, you know, she'd left my father and and we were now going to live in live in Manchester. Um, obviously she had to keep quiet as she was leaving the house. And so for us, we you can't just go up and get a house straight away. You have to be on a, on a waiting list. And we ended up in a homeless shelter in a, a district called Moss Side. And Moss Side was the roughest, as you guys would call, ghetto in the whole of UK in the mid-80s. Um, it was, it was, wasn't a nice place to live. But I was the only, me and my sisters were the only Caucasian kids in our school. So that straight away drew attention to us. And I was fighting from the age of eight onwards. You know, I was scrapping more to protect my sisters and protect myself. Um, and um, I, 
we, we then moved to school from there. But during this period, my father obviously got in touch. There, there started to then be a custodial case of who was going to have custody of, of the children. Um, but my father had just been promoted to an RSM and was getting posted to Germany. But he put his career on hold and decided to stay in the UK. I and mean, then every two weeks, he would travel 240 miles to Manchester to collect us and then drive us back for the weekend. So it was a 500-mile round trip. And, you know, looking back and seeing what he'd put on hold and his, his commitment and effort to, to maintain communication was, was quite admirable, I think. And um, so, yeah, this went on for about two years. Got to, got to the court case. I mean, the judge was quite adamant that he didn't want to split the siblings up. There was me and my two sisters, and they were both younger than I. And I was about 10 years old at this point. And so the judge, looking back, was, was ludicrous. The judge said, well, the children make the decision. You know, the eldest will make the decision for the siblings. And so me being the eldest and only at 10 years old, you know, you know, I, I, I could make a much of a decision at 10 now. And if, if, you know, my 10-year-old <laughs> daughter, if I gave her that responsibility, it, it'd be far too much. But I was very close to my father. I enjoyed my weekends away with my father, you know, the natural bond, father and son. And so I chose my father. And me and my sisters then went to live with my dad. And I always remember the, the day that my mother had to drop me off, me and my sisters. It had to be a, a neutral area. And, yeah, the, hyst the hysteria of watching your mum break down as your father takes you away, you, you, I still oh. remember it to this day. And... You know, my mother went on and, you know, had a successful career, ended up being a working in the prison prison service for 20 plus years. Um, but, you know, I won't lie that it's still now it gets brought up at family events. You know what I mean? Did, did I make, the, you know, your sister may make a comment, did we make the right decision? And, you know, at the age of 10, it was the right decision for me and, and, and I thought it was the right decision for my sisters. But a lot of pressure at a young age to make some, um, some serious decisions, which would obviously landscape the rest of your life. Yeah, big time. I mean, that's a lot of pressure to put on a 10-year-old kid. I can't believe the judge did that. He was probably uh, thrown thrown from the bench not long after that. Yeah. that uh, I can't believe that they would be a normal thing that they would do. But uh, that's incredible. That's incredible. So you make that decision, you guys are off. And because you're so close to the, the military, you're growing up in that environment, do you know that's your path or... I know that you wanted to be a firefighter at some point. You uh, you uh, you want to do that at yeah. some point, but you're aware of the military. And were you were you just were you against it, or were you just like, hey, I'm gonna go, this firefighter thing. I think is gonna be my path. Or how did that all no, come? No, no. So I was never against the military. You know, I was aware of the military, but I didn't really have a good insight into the structure of the military. Who did what? Where airborne were positioned? You know, what their role was within the bigger picture. Um, and and being coming from an airborne town, I'd never heard of the Royal Marines or the SPS. You know, it was um, okay. You know, there's not a chance, especially back yeah, then. Yeah, they would never, you know, especially the SPS back oh then. Oh God, they, they would never have a Royal Marine recruiting um, station in an airborne town. So I was aware of the military and I enjoyed the military environment. You know, my, but my father was a it's what we call a tracksuit soldier. So he was the army soccer coach, manager, and player. So whereas I saw a lot of my friends' fathers wearing their military uniform, my father would be wearing the tracksuit because his, his career was split between being a sergeant major, but then also, you know, sports-wise, running the army football team. So, so his career wasn't so much, um, 
you know, uh, tour based, you know, at the time. I think, yeah. I think during my father's career, he did a couple of tours in Northern Ireland. That was the, you know, that was all that was going on at, at the time. We didn't have the mm-hmm. Afghan or, or Iraq going on. And um, so he, you know, he had no aspirations of going airborne or, or commando. So I wasn't aware of these other, other units. But I always, as you mentioned, I always wanted to be a fireman. That was always my aspirations to be a fireman. And, and my father was very old school. You know, he made sure I did all my homework before I was allowed to go play out with my friends. You know, we're looking back. I thought, yeah, yeah that, that was a good decision. So when I finished school, so we finished school at 16 uh, and then you go on to college. So I never looked at further education, went to college. And, you know, for me, I thought, well, I know I don't, I'm not really interested in this. So it then yeah. came to, you know, the summer holidays. I and mean, me and my friends decided to go surfing down in Newquay. I'd been surfing since a young boy with my father on our summer vacations. And, you know, I just stayed there. I just stayed there. I got a silver service waitering job and never came back after the two weeks. My father collected my friends, so asked <laughs> asked where I was and he said well he's he's staying here this was long before this is 1994 this is long before mobile phones or you know there's no way he could get in touch with me direct so you no know, six months later he came back down found me working in a surf shop and sort of you know really really went to town on me told me how I'd ruined my education and you know how much you know I disappointed him and on the on the road the road moved back which is about five hours you know, he was still going on and on. And I sort of silenced him. I said, well, I'll join him. I'll join the army. And he, I, could, I just remember his first, his first response was like, you'd last two minutes. That was his response. And I just thought, well, I'm not going to get into an argument with you. You know, I'll, I'll just prove you wrong. And then on that Monday morning, I went with him to work. And the actual careers office was only about 100 metres from where his office was. And I walked across and, you know, signed up for the military. But I came out coming from in Oldershot, coming from an airborne town, I came out joining the parachute regiment. So I went back to my father's office and I said, oh, I'm joining the Paris. He said, you're bloody not. And he marched me straight back in. (laughs) And he said, you'll join the Royal Engineers. Because I think for him, his mindset, he probably, you know, I was probably about 65 kilos and five foot seven. So no, nothing like the figure that I am now. And so he was probably thinking he's going to do a minimum term three years. What can he get? from the military rather than what can the military get from him. So that's where his, his sort of mindset was. But I didn't realize that as a Royal Engineer, you could also go do the All Arms Commander course. You can also be an airborne engineer because he never explained the dynamics of the military to me. So he sat me down and explained that to me. And I thought, oh, that makes a bit more sense. So I went in, joined the Royal Engineers and I went back a couple of weeks later. I mean, you do this online test, a touchscreen test. Um, and it basically lets you know what trades you're suitable for. And so thankfully to me, all the trades came up. Yeah, you have the choice. And, you know, I was thinking, well, what's going to sound sexy to the women? So I thought, well, bomb disposals. This is long before Afghan and Iraq. <laughs> bomb disposal sounds good. Um, so again, I went to my father's office. I said, I'm going bomb disposal. He said, no, you're bloody not. And again, he marched <laughs> me back in. And he was very instrumental in and getting me on that start point and, and seeing where, what trades I, I, I could get. So, um, yeah, I was thankful for that. Interesting. It's always interesting to me how, uh, a, a lot of times for a lot of people that I've met anyway, who've grown up 
in the military as a military brat, as we call them in the United States, um, how they don't know that much about what their parents do or about the military structure for them. It's just normal. And they're going to school and all their friends, it's normal for them too. So they're going to these schools with everybody else whose parents have jobs in the military and, uh, but they don't know the structure. So if you're on the outside looking in and you're studying it as a kid and you're studying all the different ranks and all the different things that you could do in the military and finding out about special operations and then really diving deep in that, Kids that grow up in are like, uh, yeah, my dad was in the army or my mom was in the army or the Navy. Uh, you know, maybe they know the rank, maybe they don't. It's always shocking to me how, how, uh, how different it is because when it's just normal to you, it's kind of like, eh, it's kind of like having a dad who's plays in the NFL. It's kind of like, eh, yeah, it's just normal, you know, something like that. It's true. Yeah. We, yeah. You call it military brats. We're, we're called pads brats. Yeah. We call it, we're, we're called pads brats, but, uh, but no, I think you hit the nail on the head, you know, being immersed in that environment, it's just normal for you to see and you don't really take much or pay much attention to who's wearing what ranks or what berries are on on people's heads but yes from a civilian perspective they're intrigued in the military and and the, and the structure and that and actually when i went uh, as we'll touch later on on special forces selection there's a lot of guys i was on selection with who who weren't pads brats they were civilians and from a young age that's all they've aspired to be you know they've just they've just read the books mm-hmm. they've seen the movies and and, you know, for me, it was it. It was a different path. It was just almost like this is the natural path. <laughs> right. No, it's like that. It was like that for me. I did all that studying yeah. and knew where I wanted to go. I was drawn towards special operations very early on to the SEAL teams in particular. Mm. But uh, it's also fascinating, I think, from people, people from the outside that find out about uh, tracksuit soldiers. And we have, I don't know if we haven't have a name for it in the United States, but when people talk to someone and they say, oh, yeah, I played softball on the Army team for like five years. You're like, what? <laughs> You got, you were paid to play softball, like, and, and most people, not most people, but, uh, a lot of people have a touch point, at least with the army marksmanship unit, um, because that makes sense. Like the army has a marksmanship unit and they go around and they compete and they do three gun and they do all these different things. That's kind of normal. But when you find out that the army has like a football team or, you know, soccer team, like people are like, wait, what? that's a profession you can actually do that yeah. and uh so i guess you guys have the have the same thing yeah we, recruiting we do it, it tends you tend to find they're ones who probably haven't been scouted as a civilian um and they see okay. an opportunity in the military and there's a lot of famous athletes who, who joined the military and then got taken out of the military to then go professionals and nigel ben who was a boxer you know he he, he was there chris okay. akabusi um Oh, what's the name? Um, Holmes, uh, Dame Holmes. You know, they're all brilliant athletes, Olympian winners, but they started off in the military. So their careers sort of took off in the military. And, and the great thing about the military is they have the the infrastructure to support you. You know, they, they you yeah. know, they, you right. know, and and the time as well. If you if they see potential in you, then yes, your sort of military career is sort of pushed to one side. I mean, you're then forced into another another direction. I I joined. I joined uh, with a friend who ended up playing rugby all his career, but he went all over the world. You know, you'd see him in Australia, you'd see him in South Africa and and something that you would never get unless you were a professional. So it's almost that semi-professional environment um, and, and, you, and yeah. you're getting paid for it. Yeah, no, it's not a bad option. Yeah. And uh, so you go into, into Paris and is it like boot camp? You go there, the bus picks you up, you go in, you get your head shaved, you get yelled at. Like, is that, is that your start as well? Yeah, so and are you in good shape at this point? Are you, uh, are you in surfing shape? Are you in kind of the shape you are now or what, uh, nothing, what's that like going like in? the shape I was in now? And I say it's about 65 kilos and five foot seven. And I, and I remember 
um, turning up on day one. So I joined the Royal Engineers. So we have to do a 10 week basic training first. And my father, again, you know, he started, he interjected, you know, he made sure my hair was cut before I turned up on day one, you know, from a, from a military man and from being an instructor himself, he knows what the instructors are looking for. And, mm. you know, so first impressions last. And, uh, so he already had my head shaved. I, I had to be on parade. It said, said on the joint instructions, be there between 0800 and 1700 hours. So for me, that's a nine hour window. My father, yeah. my father dropped me off at five to eight. He had, oh, yeah, yeah. I, was the, there you I go. was the first one that turned up. I was, I was in a suit. <laughs> um, but I then stood on parade for nine hours until the five o'clock deadline. <laughs> watching all these other ones coming in at 10 to five or half four in, in drips and drabs. But I understand why he did it, you know, you know, so that I wasn't from the off drawing attention to myself. And, you know, I, I played a lot of sport. I wasn't physically as in, as in uh, large, you know, but running wise, I, I was quite good. And, but as it progressed, you know, those 10 weeks sort of finished uh, and then we went on to continuation training in combat. So we do combat engineering and that's where, that's where the upper body tends to come and we start to do bridge building uh, and, and, okay. and things like that. And so, and all the equipment in the engineers is quite, quite heavy anyway. So in a short period of time, it was about a year. So that would have been my basic training, my combat engineer training, my driver courses onwards. I did see a, a physical change in my body because I was 17 and a half when I joined the military. So I'm still not a fully grown adult. Um, but you're getting three square meals a day. You're, you're working, you're physically active, whether that's doing PT or actually you know building things. And so I did see a big change. But mentally was where I got stronger in a short period of time because, you know, going back to that conversation with my father in the car, where he said I'd last two minutes. Well, I'm a year later, I've now passed through basic training. I'm now in the Royal Engineers. And it's almost like, you know, for me, I was just ticking off boxes. And it's like, once I was successful, and I wasn't the fittest and I wasn't the best, I gave it my 100%. And it's almost like, well, what next? And then I would then look at the next option. So, so for me, I got, because of my, because of my father's name, Stott isn't a common surname in, in the military, so especially in the Royal Engineers. So mm. it was quickly highlighted that you're Davy Stott's boy. Um, uh -huh. He's a good soccer player. So my first posting was 2A Engineer Regiment in Germany because they were the army football champions in Germany. Nice. Um, <laughs> so although I tried to get away from my father, <laughs> it was being steered by the surname. So I then found myself as a tracksuit soldier in Germany okay. playing, playing sport. So on arrival, my, my sergeant major was like, well, we, they call them kiss ballers. Well, you're a kiss baller. He said, mm -hmm. he says, so I'm never going to see you because yeah. you're going to be in a tracksuit. So, but for him, for his squadron, he needed to designate certain individuals for certain roles, whether it's guard, whether it's mess manager, but he needed a PTI. And he said, you know, you go do your PTI course. So What's PTI? Physical training instructor. So working in the gym. Okay. Yeah. So working in the gym. Yeah. So, um, so I went away and did that course again, successful on that. And, you know, that's when I then started seeing real big changes, working in the gym, playing sports uh, as well myself. 
And so are you at this point, are you thinking, hey, this isn't so bad. I can uh, play, play soccer and work out. And yeah, uh, yeah. Or are you thinking, hey, there's more to it than this. And I want to go to that next step, but I'm going to make this a, a career. I'm going to stay in long term. Or what are, you, what are you thinking at this point? Um, A bit of both. You know, when I first got there, it was great to be in Germany. You know, it was long before the Euros. It was Deutschmark. So you, we were getting a lot more money than our counterparts back in the UK because we were living abroad. Mm-hmm. You know, everything was cheaper. Everything was tax-free, the cars, the, the the stereos and things like that. So that initial, as a young 18-year-old arriving in Germany, you know, it's great to be there. But, but yeah, you, you ended up playing football all the time, playing uh, semi-professional at the weekend. But I soon then saw that my career was no different from my father's. Um, and so I, I decided, Ro, I, I want to go my own path. You know, physically, I'd built myself up in the gymnasium as well. Um, and I could see as well, even from the other PTIs, even they noticed there was something different about myself compared to them. You know, I was volunteering for everything. You know, we would have like, um, it's called a combat fitness test, which each, everyone in the military has to do each year. It's an eight mile march mm-hmm. in, in two hours. And we had five squadrons to get through. So I did all of them in, 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 in two days, in a two day period. And, and they're like, what are you doing? But for me, it was just like, just experience and, and, and getting time with weight on my back. So I, I then, so the options I had was the all arms commander course, join five, nine commando or nine parachute regiment, which is the airborne and nine para were back in older shop where I grew up. So for me, yeah. you know, joining the military, you want to see the world. You don't really want to be going back to where you, you go, but I didn't want to discriminate. So I, I, I filled out both application forms. You know, put them on a the table, put put them behind my back, and I got my friend to pick one, left or right, and he picked it, and I was at like, commandos. Okay, so that's what I did. I then I then went off and uh, to do the all arms commando course. But where is that one? That's down in Limston with the with the rule where the Royal Marines train. So the Royal Marines train down in uh, Limston, which is Exmouth in South Devon. Um, okay. and it's literally a stone's throw from Dartmoor, which is where they do all their training. It's which is um, Dartmoor, it could be the summer, but you'll still have all four seasons. It's very wet, very okay. uh, yeah. moist area. So, um, yeah. so yeah, I, I went down there. On uh, before that, you have to go to Five Nine Commando. You can't just turn up at Limston. So they had their own internal. They call it a beat up, which is a four week intense um, course. But what it does is actually is actually harder than the Commando course itself. But they just get you in a position physically, mentally, and admin-wise, because um, with the Royal Marines, you obviously need to be able to survive in the field. So a lot of it's about skill craft uh, rather, than, okay. rather than just just the physical attributes. So they, they get you into business, and you have to pass that beat up before you can go to, to Limston. So I passed that and then went to, went to Limston for the 10 weeks. But for me, as a student, I didn't learn anything on that course. I, it was 1997, you know, I was, I was a young lad still, about 20 years old. And the instructors just had this mentality that you just needed to be in pain and you needed to be cold. And, you know, I, I, I passed the course, but from when I started 10 weeks board forward to when I, where I finished 10 weeks later, the only difference was is I had a green beret. I hadn't really learned much from them. So, um, so, but yeah, it was ironic. I then went back four years later as an instructor and how things changed 180 um, was, it was a big thing. You know, when I went back, it was, I always remember how I felt as a student. I had no respect for my instructors. 
you know, the, the, the mindset of just screaming and shouting at me is fine. I don't mind that, but, you know, I need to learn something. So when I went back, um, and there's a couple of instructors as well still doing that, and I could see the response from the students. They were getting zero response. It was just like glazed mm-hmm. eyes. They were just in the press-up position. So, so when I go out, if I got them into the press-up position, I'd make sure that I was in the press-up position with them. I'd also explain why they're doing press-ups, not doing press-ups because I've just told you to do press-ups. It's because they genuinely had messed up. And so I, yeah. I got a different response from the students than what these guys were getting and what my instructors were getting. And actually, I was quite quiet. You know, it was a mutual relationship. But if they messed up, then, yeah, they wished that they had the other instructors. But, <laughs> but in fairness, they, they felt like they personally let you down uh, as well. But, they, yeah. but, but thankfully, the sort of, the methodology and the mindset that they just need to be thrashed and gone. You know, they wanted to get them into a, a good, you know, physically, mentally and, and soldiering wise to be able to then work alongside the Marines. So there was a lot more focus on, on the soldiering and the skills uh, as well in the warfare, which is, which is good. Um, but as, as instructors always had to demo it as well. So, you know, we were always, you know, had to be at the top of our game. I call it the sugar pedestal. But at any time it could crumble, <laughs> you know, when the student got it. When the students were watching. Yeah. So yeah, so it was it was good to see, like I said, my commander course learned nothing, but it's good to see in a short period that they sort of changed that. Got it. And so when you're in, in Paris and you're doing the engineering, you're uh, you're learning to build things and blow them up. Is that the uh, is that the idea? Is that is that how your engineers work? Yeah. And then when you or what's your what's your what's your mission in Paris and then what versus your mission in five nine commando. So, so five five nine commando. Um, so primarily, you're all you're all combat engineers. So you're all combat engineers. So we do everything from watermanship to you know building bridges, as you say, uh, route denial, demolitions. And back in the day, you know, when I joined it, there was still booby traps. We were still doing all of that. You know, you need to be able to, you know, build roads, culverts. There's a lot of things that the engineers can do. So we're yeah. all combat engineers, and then you then you have your own individual trade. So you may be a an electrician, a plumber, a bricklayer, um, plant operator, okay. mechanic. So we all have our own individual traits. So that's that's the baseline within the engineers. I and mean, then obviously you have your units. Five nine commando. We are supporting three commando brigade, which are the Royal Marines. So we have okay. um, four troops um, who work alongside. And each troop would then work. You know, for example, uh, two troop. Five nine commander would work with four five commando. One troop would work with four two commando. So they have a, a a troop attached to one of the commando units, and yeah, their aim is to provide engineer support to the to the commandos. I I quickly got um, selected for five nine commando recce troop, which is a reconnaissance troop, and we work alongside brigade recce force from three commando brigades. So they're okay. they're snipers and they're mountain leaders. The forward um, observers from the Royal Artillery have a unit, and then they have the five nine recce troops. So our role was to be for advance of the troops to sort of identify any future engineering tasks which the rest of the unit would need to pick up. So, so I was very fortunate to go into recce troop at quite a young age, and so that was our role. But although we were engineer support it was very much we were still we're doing a lot more infantry than what the rest of okay. our, our unit was doing so so my infantry sort of skills went up tenfold being part of brigade reconnaissance force 
Got it. And is it during this time that you also, do you go to dive school at some point? And then also you end up in prison for a little bit here yeah, yeah. Uh, so at some the, point for a, for a fight, right? Yeah. So I'll probably go back. So the, the, when I was in Germany, um, I was about, and I'd applied to go for five, nine commando. My, one of the squadrons, uh, from, from Germany had just returned from Northern Ireland. They had a Northern Ireland tour. And so they had like a welcome back party on, on, in the camp. Uh, we call it the Nafi. It's like the, the bar. Um, but the, there's another course it runs concurrently, which the engineers do to support the uh, infantry. It's called the assault. Uh, it's called the pioneers course. So um, some infantry units will do some basic combat engineering and engineering to be able to you know support their their units as well. So it's called a, a yeah pioneers course. So there was a unit called the fusiliers, and these guys, infantry lads, you know, drinking heavy, always causing trouble downtown. Could it cause so much trouble downtown? They weren't allowed downtown. Um, <laughs> so they were gated to camp. So this this evening that we had our welcome back party, these guys in the bar, same as us. Um, and some of these lads have been quite rude to some of the lads' wives. Um, mm. So me and one of my friends decided to take it upon ourselves to uh, have a fight with them. And, you know, we put a few of the guys on the floor. And then my my boss, my, my staff sergeant came in. He said, right, you two go to sleep. You know, it's brushed under the table. I was then rudely awoken a few hours later by the Royal Military Police who said, you know, you're under arrest for assault. So went away, got questions. It turned out that the Fusiliers uh, boss wasn't happy that, you know, I think a few of his guys were in hospital. So um, yeah, rudely awoken, got questions. And obviously my concern was, well, I'm going away on my commando course in, in next week. So I went away, went back to 5-9, did their beat-up, the four-week beat-up that I touched on. But on the second week, I got pulled in the office and the, the chief instructor was like, ah, you've got to go back to Germany for an ID parade. I was like, okay. Um, so I thought, well, that's me now. I'm not going to be able to pass this beat-up, which means I can't do, you know, until the next course, which would be another 14 weeks. Um, but actually, because I was doing so well on the first week, they said, look, this doesn't affect your beat-up. Go away do the ID parade and come straight back and we'll see where we're, where we're at. So I went away, went back. My, my friend who, um, you know, I still keep his anonymity to this day. You know, my friend who did it with me, you know, he, his brother was in the same unit and he had, you know, he, he looked like all the other guys. He had dark hair and things like that. And whereas me, I was still growing into my ears. My ears were still, I was known <laughs> as the, I was known as the unit PTI. So everyone knew me as the guy who worked in the gym. So as soon as these lads walked in, they're like, yeah, him. I was like, okay, great. Um, yeah. But they didn't pick out my friend. So, you know, when they said, well, who was it with you? I said, no, I did them all. And they said, what, you, you did it? I was like, yeah. And he he got away with it, thankfully. So I went back to, went back, finished the beat up. And they said, yeah, you're in, you're physically, mentally, you know, you're in a good position. You know, go on the commander course. And then about, um, finished the commando course successfully went back to five nine commando and our admin officer pulled us all in you know congratulated us all on earning our green berets and he said you and the five nine commando were in northern ireland on a tour at this point he said you guys are going across the water so i thought perfect this is my first tour he said not you start he goes you're going across the other water you've got to get this thing cleared this this um this incident so my friends went to northern ireland i went back to germany and you know i had the option of appealing it and I could probably have got away with it. It would be court martial, but could take anything up to 18 months to two years. But as a young 
commando you know you just wanted to join your unit so i was like yeah guilty i <laughs> just pleaded guilty let's get it done and over and out the way so i got charged and my commanding officer but everyone in the unit knew it wasn't just me they knew that my friend was involved and they knew that these guys you know had been quite rude and, and probably deserved yeah. it so there, I, you know i wasn't I wasn't treated or ill-treated or even treated like a prisoner. I was just treated like one of the guys, you know, and the, the commanding officer, um, my friend who was the RSM, because he played football with me, he marched me in. And then the commanding officer, who was ex-9 para airborne, you know, he sort of said, look, you know, I was going to give you 60 days, but because you've just passed the all-arms commander course, I'm going to take four days off. I was like, oh, <laughs> well, that straight away. Four whole days. Yeah, so that, 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 yeah. 40, All right, take it. that 14 weeks of hard work has paid off. And he said, any questions? <laughs> and I sort of, me, because I've got a dry sense of humor. I said, yeah, if I'd gone Paris, would I have got more days taken off? And he sort of laughed, <laughs> sort of laughed giggling. Yeah. yeah, and that, that was me on my way. And I went to Colchester Prison, which is called the Glass House. Um, it's, it's infamous within, within the British military. But... Actually, when I when I got there, your escorts take you there, I and mean, the instructors are screaming and shouting. And from the outside looking in, it looks like hell. You're just always getting yelled at. People are always yelling at yeah, you. Yeah, 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 yeah. So you know, <laughs> and it, yeah, it just goes over my head. But the um, but actually, once once I'd got into in the walls, and the, my um, my escorts had left because obviously the escorts are now going to report back to their friends, like. You do not want to go there. You know, it looked like hell. Yeah. But actually, when I went in there, just treated like adults. They understand, look, you've made a mistake, you know, um, do your time and carry on with your career. And I actually really enjoyed Colchester Prison because I was doing two lots of PT a day. I was doing <laughs> vehicle and aircraft recognition and, and things. And I have a bit of an OCD. So I like, you know, probably from my time in the military, I like things to be squared away and Actually, yeah. there you have two room inspections a day, so it was. Um, and it sounds like regular military it doesn't sound that much different than uh, exactly. than everything else you've been doing. Exactly. The only difference <laughs> is you don't get paid. They don't. You don't get. Oh, okay. Yeah, you don't get paid at all. That's the big downside from that. So I did. I did, I did my. <laughs> I did my fifty-six days, and then um, I left, and I reported back to Five Nine Commando, and my admin officer. You know, um, still good friends with him now, Ian, and he. Uh, he just got my report and he's ripped it up, you know, however good or however bad it was, it was a good report. He ripped it up and he just threw it in the bin. He said, now it's a clean slate. Um, so, so for me, you know, I always tell people, people will always have glitches in their life and things like that. As long as you learn from them, you know, don't make the same mistakes, you know, then, you know, you, you've learned from that experience. And thankfully for me, it was quite early in my career. You know, you, you, you see, Guys, guys and girls later on in their careers as, as sergeants, yeah. as staff sergeants, go into Colchester Prison, and all their hard work up until then is sort of being lost. So at least to me, my career hadn't really taken off at that point. Yeah, no, exactly. They, they uh, I guess, in a lot of militaries, or not a lot of militaries, but uh, maybe a lot of Western militaries, they, they they want you to fail early on and learn from those mistakes, so you're wiser going forward, yeah. so you can pass those lessons along in the organization and grows as a whole. Yeah rather than just being young and making a mistake and getting tossed out immediately. So yeah. uh, there's a lot. Now, when you get up older in rank, like if you're a general or something and you've been failing your entire time, like maybe <laughs> yeah, <laughs> maybe this true. isn't your sport, but uh, you know, that's just how it, how it goes. But, uh, but eventually you're, you, uh, you go to dive school at, at some point along yeah, the way? Yeah, so in the Royal Engineers, the Royal Engineers um, 
have you can do it's a kind of additional course you have to volunteer for it to be um when i did it back in 98 it was called an army compressed air diver so everything that we do on the surface as royal engineers we can do subsurface so whether that's explosives where it's concreting you know it's you know using circular saws we can do it all underwater so um wow but so i i volunteered for this course, uh, when I was back in um, back in Germany, and it hadn't come through, and then when I did, when I when I came out of Colchester Prison, and went to Five Nine, the rest of the lads they only had about another few weeks left in in Northern Ireland, so there's no point in me going joining them because they're actually coming back. But there was a slot on a army compressed air diving course, but for the airborne engineers and the commando engineers, there's a huge waiting list. You know, these guys want to get on this course; they're physically robust to do it. And they just want the extra money. And, you know, when I went, the extra money when I did, it was only about £2.50 a day. It wasn't great. But um, now it's about £20 a day, you know. So the guys, um, so I basically got myself to the front of this huge waiting list because they were all away. Mm-hmm. I went away and did the army compressed air diving course. And for me, you know, everyone, everyone talks about how hard the para course is, how hard the commando course is, and, and, and obviously selection and things that. But for me, the diving course has got to be up there with one of the hardest as yeah. well. You know, it's um, for them, they really needed to sort of weed out those who were actually just wanted to do the course for money and those who actually wanted to be divers. You know, I didn't realize I had the option of being a diver when I joined. And uh, But again, it's like that first course, which is six weeks long, is, is hard. All the dive kits heavy, you know, you need to be physically robust. But it's that sort of alien environment of being underwater. So how diving has evolved in the military over the years from when I first did it in 1998, we would have blacked out masks so you can't see. Um, and the only means of communication was a, uh, a lifeline. It was a, a bit of rope around your chest. Um, like tugging it. Tugging it. Yeah, <laughs> they, they call it the, the pulls and the bells, um, okay. which is fine when you're, when it's fine when you're in, in a short, um, not, not deep water. Yeah. You, you know the difference between a pull and a bell. But when you're when you're down at fifty meters, and and you, and you're you're up and down with the with the flow, and it's, you don't know whether that's a pull or a bell, you know. Oh my <laughs> gosh! Um, yeah, yeah. Is that the hard hat stuff you're doing then? And you're well? Are you welding down there too? That's on you... the next course. So the first six weeks okay. is scuba. The first six weeks is a scuba course. The army compressed air divers. You go away from that. I mean, you have to then have so many hours of diving before you can then apply for your army advanced diving course, which is as you touched on the surface supply diving equipment. So it's the big Kirby Morgan helmets, you know, like, a bit like the men of honor um, sort of thing oh, yeah. um, with the surface supply umbilical hose all the way to the surface. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yeah, I mean, you're doing, you're doing the welding, you're doing the ultrafermic cutting uh, and everything else. And that's a 10 week course itself. And then if successful on that, certain candidates get selected to do the army diving supervisor course. And for that, that's more, that's more in, in the head. You need to be able, especially when it comes to health and safety, ensure everything's above board, deal with diving incidents, deal with live decompression because we're having live decompression. It's a, it's quite a, quite a difficult course, really. Um, you actually yeah. to be in the water and not have that responsibility because there has been a few fatalities in the, in the diving fraternity. So um, obviously that responsibility just lays on the, on the supervisor, but you know, a lot, some of it can be diver, Diving neglect, but some of it can be supervisor neglect. So you're obviously money-wise, you're getting a lot more money, but you're getting a lot more responsibility as well. So, 
So I ended up becoming, I was top student on my diving supervisor course. And I'd now spent eight years in 5-9 Commando. Normally you do about three years and then you move on. Okay. But because I went to Recce Troop, Recce Troop was classed as a posting within the unit. So I'd managed to really, um, I managed to stay there for about eight years because I, I went to Recce Troop. And then Recce Troop had to provide an instructor on the All Arms Commando course. So that was almost classed as a as time away from the unit. And then I got posted back. So that eight years was there. I and mean, then my, my boss was like, ah, you need to leave. He goes, you know, no one's ever done this long in a unit yeah. once. And because I'd come top of my diving supervisor course, I'd actually applied to go Pathfinders, which was the airborne reconnaissance unit. Um, but because I'd come top of the diving supervisor course, the uh, dive school uh, uh, requested me to go there. So I ended up going down to the dive school as a senior diving instructor, uh, as a sergeant down there running running the courses there, which I, which I thoroughly enjoyed. But um, yeah, but that's how, yeah, that's my diving. That's crazy that army does so such uh, goes so deep on the on the diving stuff. I mean, we have an army dive course as well, mm. um, but I'm not sure. You know, maybe they do have a like a hard hat dive thing, and I'm not even not even sure. But uh, when you're with them, you could, is that when you go up to Norway also? As, as you're heading up there and doing some cold weather warfare stuff, and and then you make it into into Kosovo at yeah, some point. Yeah, that's back in that's back in that. five nine commando. So free commando brigade would go to Norway every year. So from like January through to March every year, the whole brigade would go on exercises to Norway and you do your Arctic warfare training there. So if, if it's your first Norway, you do your Arctic warfare training. Um, and then on your second Norway, you then do your advanced and Arctic warfare training. Okay. Um, I did my Arctic warfare training and then the following year, there was a real shortage of, they call it MSIs, military ski instructors. So they said, right, you're going on your MSI course to Rukin. So Rukin is famous for, you know, you've seen the film, The Heroes of Telemark. With, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. You no, know, the still water plant. That's Ruka. Yeah, it's amazing. Yeah. What an incredible story. Yeah, oh a, my gosh. Beautiful town. Yeah. So so I ended up you know, very fortunate going to Rukin and being oh, that's trained. A, and that's where they do the course up there. That's where they do the course up there. You do it alongside the Royal no Marines way. and the um the Dutch the Dutch Marines. And it's just that's sweet. awesome. You're having a pretty good run so far. I mean, oh. you're like working in the gym, yeah. you're playing soccer, then you're doing diving stuff, and then you're moving up, you're skiing up in North. That's amazing. That's crazy. I want to go up there. I think they do um, a couple of tours you can go on, and you can actually take that that uh, route to the uh, the heavy water plant and kind of see where they went and where they where they laid up and observed, and you know where they went in and all that stuff. And I really want to do that do. I, these I, days. I, I, it's, on, I, it's on my list. Offline, I'll introduce you to a friend who runs one of them. But yeah, yeah. So, oh, awesome. So we went to Rukin and and did the the military ski instructors course and. For me, I'd only ever skied once, and that was a year before. And so it's it's not fixed hill; it's uh, it's Langlauf, it's Telemark skiing. I call it survival skiing, you know, because you've got the <laughs> you've got the Bergen on the back, yeah. and you've you've got the Polk. Um, so yeah, thoroughly enjoyed that course, you know, for me. And then my next Norway, I was then instructing as a military ski instructor. But yes, every year we would go go to Norway, which is great because you'd fatten up over Christmas, knowing that you you know you need to have those reserves ready ready for Norway. But, um, and as you touched on there, you know, when, when I was in recce troop, Kosovo, um, had now gone off. Bosnia had now, there was issues in Bosnia as well. So five, nine commando, the rest of the unit went to Bosnia, but five, nine recce troop, we were, we were attached to brigade recce force. We, we went to Kosovo. Um, but for us, it was our, 
it was the first tour for Recce Troop since the Falklands War. So, wow. yeah, so there was a lot of, you know, for us, it was a, a great privilege to, you know, represent Recce Troop, you know, since then. And again, that was a great, great tour. And our Arctic warfare training came in, you know, was, was required there as well. We're up in the mountains on, on OPs, dug in snow holes, you know, observing, relaying information back. It was, um, it was great. It was a really good tour. And, and as a young, I was now 2IC of the patrol. So I went from radio operator to 2IC. So I was, I was learning so nice. much, not just from my yeah. patrol commander, but from all the other patrol commanders within, within the Marines. So for us, it was, it was good. That's amazing. So that's your, this is your first time now doing something, quote unquote, real world. Real world, yeah. Out well, there. yeah. You're setting up these uh, hide sites and, and, and observing, sending back information, passing intelligence, that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, yeah, for me, I was, I was doing what I was trained for. I wasn't kicking a ball, blowing bubbles or skiing on yeah. ski slopes. I was, uh, <laughs> I was actually doing what, what we were trained for as a unit. Yep. Yep. That's the first time that a lot of you, unless you were in, you know, Mogadishu or first Gulf War, that was a, that was the, the first time people had done anything since either the Falklands for, and for us end of Vietnam, unless you were obviously at Desert One or Grenada or Panama. So there's little, little flashpoints, but uh, the guys that went to the Balkans, I mean, that was, that was the only game in town for, for a while for us up until September 11th, obviously. But, uh, but yeah, so you do that. And what's, uh, what stood out to you from that? What lessons did you take from your first real world experience, um, loading the rifle, you know, chambering around and, uh, and being out there real world? What did you, uh, what'd you take from that experience and, and bring forward with you into, into your next job or next, next, what, what you do next. Yeah. Yeah. I you know. I learned a lot on that tour, you know, you know, a lot of mistakes, you know, for me, it was more understanding the cultures and this will come apparent mm. later on, you know, you know, we're there to help people. And, you know, it's, um, a lot of people have this mindset that we're there because we're a military unit that we, you know, we're aggressive and it's like, you know, that was more of a peacekeeping tour unless we needed to sort of interject. But, for me, it was you know it was it was actually seeing firsthand you know the suffering because that, you know there was obviously a lot of massacres in in in, in Kosovo, um, but also a first insight into seeing other units. You know, we met the US there, we met the um, the French Foreign Legion there, and it was good to see all these other units. So, as you mentioned, unless you read about them as a young boy, you wouldn't really know much about them. So it was great to have that sort of, and it was interesting to see the crossover how we would share information you know what i mean a lot of a lot of units and i think where some people get it wrong is people try to do it on their own and you, you need to share that to share that information so that was good to see that cross i call it cross pollination uh working with other, other units and, and sharing experiences you know what worked what didn't you know when we're doing our handovers um you know I, I think i mentioned it in the book on our first patrol we went out and obviously we're like heightened this is our first patrol since the Falklands war and it was an OP on the border, and I was the rear. Uh, I was the rear rear man, and I could I could hear this tiptoeing in the grass, and you know I'm thinking someone's following us. I'm you know stop the patrol. We get an all round position, you know, and we're observing our arcs, and we just can't see anything. I'm like, okay, we just keep going. But this goes on for about two weeks, all the way through when we're in the OP uh, and onwards. And so when we came back, you know. We know we have like a hot debrief, you know, what worked, what didn't, we're going to do again, what would you do differently? And then you go into full debrief uh, a day later mm-hmm. and, you know, and it's all that, it's that initial feedback while it's still fresh in your, in your mind. And then, um, you know, for me, I, and I mentioned, I said, look, 
I don't I don't know if we've been compromised, but it felt like there was someone watching us. There was this 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 noise in the undergrowth and things like that. And then this this young intelligence officer. It was on our initial brief before we went on the ground. Uh, oh yes, I did fail to mention it. It's mating season for the tortoises. I was like, great. So we've been compromised. You know, we were like we were stood two for literally two weeks. You know. Like not getting any sleep <laughs> while these tortoises yeah. are just burrowing in the undergrowth. But again, <laughs> again for me, you know what I learned from that is, you know, you need to understand more than the the, the strategic picture. You need to understand more about the environment as well. Um, you know, I mean, it's a bit like going back to the the first Gulf War and with the guys when they didn't take their warm clothing, not realizing that actually it freezes at night. You know what I mean? It's just stuff, yeah. you know, so there's a strategic picture, but then understanding your environment as well. Yeah. And then you come back from that one. And is this when you decide you're like, okay, I'm going to stay in. What's the next step? And there's SAS and there's SBS. Or did you know about this at, at this point and how that selection yeah. process works? And is that when you decide to to take that next step? I was aware of the process because now I was in recce troop. A lot of my peers had gone on to selection. And, and in 5-9 recce troop, we had a 100% pass rate on selection for the SES. We had a really strong, you know, because the guys are, you know, mentally and physically robust, what they've done in time in the brigade recce, you know, they're in a good position. Unless they get injured, they're, they're, they're not guaranteed. No one's guaranteed, but they're in a good good starting point. So I was aware of, selection because I'd seen guys go before me and I trained with guys as well, you know, let, you know, ran up the hills with them as well. And when I went uh, as an instructor on the All Arms Commando course, at the end of the course, we would get a brief from the SBS. And that was my first sort of real exposure about the SBS and who they were and what they did and how they sat alongside the SES, you know, um, and things like that. So the, the instructor who came down, a guy called Russ, um, him and I spoke offline afterwards. And he said, have you thought about selection? And I said, actually, I am going for selection when I, when I finish here. And he said, have you thought about ESPS? I, I said, I didn't think it was an option. He said, no, we've now opened it up, tri service. So as a Royal Marine, so at this point, the SBS, you, you had to be a Royal Marine. Their candidates were 100% from the Royal Marines. Um, but the Royal Marines also had the option of going SBS or SES. So some Marines would go into the SES because they weren't comfortable underwater. They didn't like being in the water. <laughs> or, they, right. or they may have had a, a head injury, a neurological head injury, which meant they couldn't mm. go underwater. So they would go SES. So the SBS saw that they were losing candidates to the SES. And they sort of then looked okay. at the rest of the, the military and the Royal Engineers, as I said, we've got about 500 divers and they're all very, you know, very fit and gone through arduous courses. So they, they then opened up tri-service. So I was aware that the doors had now opened. Um, I went on selection after I finished on the commando course and I tore my, uh, I had a knee, knee injury. I tore, I tore my MCL, um, an MCL on the mountain. So after the first week, so that was me off, off selection there. And when I then went back to the dive. When I got selected to go to the dive school, um, I decided I was going to go for selection again. Um, and that's what I did. I, I only spent six weeks, at the, uh, six months at the dive school, um, just trained. Um, you know, it's, it's quite difficult because you're running courses and you don't want your training to be part of their course. You know, you need to do it separately. You know, some instructors use their courses as a training right. template. Yeah. Um, but for me, I learned from my first experience, when I trained for selection the first time, 
I was running up and down the, the North Devon coastal path with heavy weights on my back. And, and obviously that, yeah. that, uh, hampered my knee. So this time mm-hmm. round, I remember that first week, actually strength wise, I was good on the Hills. It was more the speed between the checkpoints. And so I wanted to work on that. And then they, they just introduced these those spin bikes. I'd never seen them before. My friend said to me, get yourself on a spin bike. He said, there's no impact and it works your cardiovascular. And that's what I did. I just put a weighted Bergen on and would do two hours a night on the spin bike. Wow. When I then, um, as a good, as a good uh, benchmark, we then took our course. They do it like it's called a basic fitness test or BFT. So a mile and a half run um, as fast as you can um, mm-hmm. in, 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 uh, in boots. And so I, I did, I came in in seven minutes, 15. It was my fastest BFT ever in the military at the age of 28. And it's because it's because of this spinning bike. Okay. So it, yeah. So speed wise, it just elevated me. I knew I had the, I knew I had the strength in the legs for the, for the walking up the mountains. But, uh, and so that was a real good benchmark for me. So I went and did the SBS briefing course and I actually did the SAS briefing course. So you do a week with both, with you choose which unit, you do a week with them and they take you up the mountains, give you more insight. And then I just said, yeah, yeah. I'm going SBS still. And, you know, I was hoping to go on the course in six months time. And, but they said, look, you're good to go now. So thankfully I spoke to my RSM at the dive school and we had enough manpower to support me to go early and yes. and he signed off that I went early and then the rest was history yeah I went on I went on selection but um on our selection as, as you know with yours it, it, you, you try to be the gray man as long as possible you know you, you don't want to be standing out you don't want to be bringing attention to yourselves from the instructors that will come later on anyway as the numbers dwindle um I was a gray man for about two minutes because <laughs> because of the army guy who's army yeah SBS. so uh so straight away I, I was exposed i knew a couple of the instructors anyway so the attention was already uh, on me from from day one to six months yeah later. uh and is that is it sbs sas doing the same initial thing altogether, or is it the same course but separate groups one sas one sbs but the same initial course selection course yeah so the the briefing course the one week course i touched about that's with their own units they do that themselves. Mm -hmm. actually selection for us unlike where you have your buds and delta separate ours is joint so it's uk sf selection so it's sas and sbs on the same six-month course the instructors okay a 50 50 with sas and sbs the only thing they rotate is the the chief instructor and the course officer, they rotate from either SAS or SBS. So, so really you're not, it's not saying I'm going SBS and you know, that's a harder course or an easier course or, or vice versa. It's the same course. And actually it's, it's great that we've done that because you have that mutual respect from both units. Mm-hmm. And we've sort of seen now over the years, like the, there was a lot of animosity between the two units, you know, a lot of competitiveness and that sort of stemmed back to the, the Falklands war. Um, because mm. during the Falcons War, SBS would work separately for the Navy and obviously the SAS for the Army. I mean, there was an incident in the Falcons War where there was a blue on blue and the SBS guy got killed by an SAS patrol. And then from then on, they then they then formed director special forces who manages both the SAS and SBS. So people everyone knew that cross-pollination, everyone knew what everyone else was doing. Um, but as the years have evolved and they've, they've had the joint selection, the officers, the seniors, all the guys now who are at the top, uh, you know, whether they are RSM or senior officers and units, just have known that joint selection. So they know that 
the guys from the SBS mm-hmm. or the guys from the SES have gone through the same process as them. And and we actually, there's 97% commonality. We actually, unlike the US, which is a bigger beast, we don't have large numbers. So we need to come together as units and, and work together a lot as well. So so for me, though, I did I did get that attention. It's like, well, why are you going? <laughs> yeah. And actually, right. my mindset, I thought, because of my diving background, I, if I went to SAS, I would end up in boat troop because of my skill sets. And the SBS also do diving or SF diving. Mm-hmm. So I, I'm on a level playing field. But that wasn't the case, you no, know, because the SBS don't do their diving until they've finished selection. So me going in, I was the diving guru for them. And so yeah, I, I, I ended up in boat troop anyway in the SBS and you know, oh, everything I tried to avoid, I ended up doing anyway. Yeah. So um, yeah, yeah, probably bad. I think that's an amazing way to go. I mean, same thing with with us after Desert One. Obviously, we took those those lessons from from 1980 and then applied them. Obviously, with JSOC and SOCOM and creating these these joint commands where you're training with these other other uh, other branches of the military. So it's not just on game day where all of a sudden now we're getting thrown together. No, we have years of training and. So all that, all those lessons from, from 1980, they just applied them going forward. And my, my hat's off to, to them for doing that, for making bold adjustments, for saying, okay, we had this, this situation. Um, it was not, uh, not ideal. How can we make it better going forward? So those guys that did that and then formed those new commands where we all fall off, get all special operations together from Army, Navy, Air Force, Marines. Marines joined a little later. They were a little, little late to the game, but they eventually came under that umbrella as well. Yeah. But it definitely made us a, a more formidable fighting force going forward. Mm. Um, it sounds like something that, that you guys did as well a little later on, but, um, but you're going through that. So you're, you're right. You have your pack on next to somebody who's going to SAS next to another guy who's going to the SAS or SAS. And, uh, and you guys are hiking, doing your orienteering, doing all that stuff. And then you pass that. And then you go to the jungle. Is that, is the jungle the next thing? Jungle phase. Yeah. So the Hills phase is the first four weeks. And you know, that that's literally, as you just touched on, Weighted Bergens, getting from A, a to B, um, you know, self no motivation from the instructors. It's all self motivation, and yeah, and it's an insight into what your navigation is like. You know, so we have two courses a year: a winter and a summer course. But some guys think, well, if I do a summer course, because obviously, if, especially if they're not as good navigation wise, it it's a clear day; they can see where they're going. Uh-huh. But that will soon catch them up when they get to the jungle phase, because okay. if you're weak at navigating, it will be exposed in the jungle. So yeah, we do the four weeks. Um, and then numbers dwindle on that. You know, I had about 200 mm-hmm. start my course. And then, and then you've got six weeks in Brunei doing jungle training, you do 28, you know, two weeks before you go in the jungle, uh, learning all about the SOPs. And, and for us as well, we have new weapon systems. Our weapon systems are the same as yours. Um, and different from the rest of the military. We have new communications mm-hmm. kits. So we're having to learn about new equipment as well, new tactics, okay. SOPs, uh, live firing. Everything we do is live firing uh, in the jungle as well. So obviously your weapon handling has to be on point before you go into the jungle. I mean, yeah, you have 28 days in the jungle, which is, um, yeah, it's, it's, an, it's a leveler, the jungle. It, yeah, that's what everybody says. I mean, right. you guys have been going to Brunei. I mean, you've been doing both the, the hill phase and then the, the jungle phase forever. Yeah. Um, and it's such a, you know, such a cool, I mean, iconic, amazing. I mean, we obviously we uh, t- took a lot of the lessons of your selection and brought them over to, to our side of the house with Charlie Beckwith going through the, the course in the six, early 60s, I think it was, um, and bringing those back and, and applying those to our special operations forces later on or selection courses later on. But 
um, the jungle. I mean, man, you guys have been going to Brunei for forever. Forever, And that that everybody that comes out of there says that it's the, it's, it levels the playing field. And that is, you'll you'll know what you have uh, after spending those 28 days in the jungle. It is. It's, um, you know, it's, it's obviously can be quite claustrophobic for some people underneath the canopy and, you know, you, you see guys, it's, it's strange because the instructors up until this point, you no, know, they don't really engage with you on the hills. Up in this point, they, you know, you've got your instructors and they're, 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 you see them targeting individuals and they go through everyone. It just, they play mind games. They're like, you're not good enough. You know, why put yourself through this? You know, they, they, they have their own little sort of tricks and games and things like that. But some guys believe it. Some guys may have a bad day and think, that's me, I'm, I'm done, you know. And I always remember the chief instructor, you know, he's saying, look, let us fail you, don't fail yourself. You know, don't, a lot of guys are self-critiquing. Um, and, he, mm-hmm. you know, yes, everyone has a bad day. Yes, everyone makes mistakes. As long as you learn from those mistakes and don't repeat them, then, you know, you're only human. So, um, so yeah, you see guys every morning, the helicopter will come in and you see guys picking up their kit and going and you're like, yeah, it's, it's strange. But for me, I, I, I enjoyed the jungle. You know, I, I, yeah. me, I, I love wildlife and things like that. And it's just, and for us, it's, Everyone thinks, obviously, with special forces, you need to be able to do a triple backwards somersault and throw ninja stars. Actually, for us, it was just soldiering, basic soldiering done well. There's no shortcuts and things like that. And obviously, people from different careers and different backgrounds will, will have shortcuts. Everyone takes the easiest route. So, and that's all it is, just basic soldiering done well. And if done well, yeah. it's hard. <laughs> it's hard. Yeah. No, I see the best in the world do the basics exceptionally well. Yeah. Like that's, uh, you know, matter, no matter what it is. Yeah. Uh, and so you go through that and then you guys do the, your SEER school, escape and evasion after that. Escape and evasion. A couple other little things. Yeah, okay. we do, we do the SEER course, escape and evasion, uh, either in Scotland or in Wales. And, and again, that's why there's no advantage of whether you do a winter or a summer course. Cause if you do a winter on the hills, you've probably got a summer SEER course and vice versa. Mm-hmm. So it will catch you up at some point. It'll catch you somewhere. Yeah. It'll catch you somewhere. So we do the same course, then we have um, CT phase, about four weeks, counterterrorism, mm. um, learning nice. all about that. So basically, they're getting you into a position. We do our para course, either in US or in Cyprus. And they're basically getting you, after six months, getting you into a position that you can slot in to one of the teams yeah, as a basic. And then that's when your career starts. You know, for us, it's like the biggest thing in the world. You think, yes, you know, I'm now in you know tier one special forces and you actually turn up on day one and realize that you're the new brew boy is going to make <laughs> exactly take out that trash. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah exactly. exactly. Change the light bulb. Same thing everywhere. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and then, then, then you though, SBS, you have a little more time tacked on, right? Yeah. You have to go. And then, and then is that where you're doing your combat dive phase at that point? We have another three months. So the, yeah, the SES get, get their berry and belt and we get thrown a blue tracksuit and we, um, <laughs> We, we, we go and do our SF boat course, which is six weeks long, um, and then followed by the SF dive course, which is another six weeks long in, in, out in Gibraltar. And that's where we start using the rebreathers, which is a totally different dive set from what I, I, I had been used to. Um, so for me, because of my, I really struggled on the first week on my dive course because, mm. because of the must, we had full face masks in the engineers and it was mm. there and things like that. I'm now at half face mask. With a, yeah, and and so muscle memory, muscle wise, the air kept pissing out my nose. Got it. it kept pissing yeah. out my nose. So my my endurance on my dive set was less than these other guys. So what I had to do for a couple of the dives is I was buddied up to my diver, and we just took my mask off. I just dived nil vis with, and just got used to having that. In, I had to, otherwise, I mean, that's how I tricked 
Jeez. my body to use this this mask. But yeah, it was um That's for me. Wild. I thought it'd be quite easy this, but it wasn't. It was just trying to get my body used to this new system uh, of diving. Yeah. That's amazing. Then when I was, uh, I I don't know if they still do it or not, but uh, when I first got to the SEAL teams, we had our guys that were going to SDV in Hawaii. They they trained in Coronado at the time. I don't think they do anymore. But but then we had some guys from SBS out there. And I remember, so this is like 1990, I want to say eight, might be a year off. But uh, I remember one of them gave me a uh, an awesome shirt. Gave me the blue shirt. I was just trying to find it oh. before we did this. I was, yeah. yeah, we've been we've moved around a few times since then. I was like asking my wife, I'm like, where's that bag that has all the old shirts? <laughs> I was like pulling them out, trying to find it because I wanted to to put it on. Although I might have gained a couple of pounds since then. But uh, but yeah, do you guys still do that? Do we, do we do some interoperability stuff still? Yeah, like lads still go to Hawaii on the SDV course, and nice. you know we 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 I've been to Coronado a couple of times as well when we used to do nice. training over there. And again, I've swapped tops, and yeah. <laughs> I might have your shirt. Yeah, yeah, it was quite <laughs> funny. I swapped a top with one of the guys, and he was a buds instructor, so I had a buds instructor top, and I was, nice. And we went we went out for breakfast. Me and the lads, we were doing our. Um, coastal skippers were doing a you know, yacht master course and of course oh, cool. of course everyone came up to me and thanked me for my service i was like oh shit look at that. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome yeah yeah but um but no yeah we do it yeah still very much a lot of cross-pollination we will have a guy based um we call it exercise long look as you've touched mm-hmm. on before about that uh cross-pollination we'll have a guy based in in, in virginia uh, yep. We'll have a guy with Australian SES. And then likewise, we have yep. guy, your guys working with us. So we're always learning and evolving and sharing, uh, sharing yep. information. Such a great program. I think we had the guy that we sent to um, Australia back in the day anyway. They, we sent him as a, as a senior chief. So um, uh, in E8. And uh, he was there for like two years. I think they didn't want to come back from Australia. They would go down there for some time. I think it was a two-year billet. Sometimes they'd yeah. extend for a year, if I remember correctly. But not a not a bad gig. Yeah. Um, but what, so what year is that? What year do you uh, finish your training and get to your first uh, squadron? So, I mean, uh, when is this 2006, 2006, this is, so yeah, I mean, okay. I, I joined them and, um, and for me, it's like, it's a bit like going to five, nine again, you know, you're, you're working alongside like-minded individuals. You don't stand out, you know, as, as, uh, as, as you did later on in your career within the military. And yeah, I just love the whole, the whole mindset. You know, it's, um, you know, we have a thing called camp commandos. Those that are very good in camp, polishing their boots. They look, you know, but these guys, you know, they're just, just scruffy bears and things like that. And they just, you know, we just all, all got on. And, you know, for me, again, it was that whole thing, you know, it's almost like I'm now where I wanted to be. Um, and so for me, life life was great. I was very fortunate. You know, we joined it. I joined at a height Height of war and terror, you know, it's probably the busiest, one of the busiest times in UK SF history. So I was literally ticking off a lot of boxes in a short period of time, you know, over in the Middle East on, on ops, um, first ever operational jump for the SBS and then did numerous jumps following that. We were doing Incredible. hostage rescues off the, off the East coast of Africa. So, so guy, unfortunately like guys before us, probably a decade or so before have been sort of like wishing for any of these and we just had it condensed so quickly so so for me i was you know i was i was thoroughly enjoying life and you know for me it couldn't get any better but then obviously that took a tragic turn when i had my my parachuting accident 
Yeah. Yeah. I want to get to that. And, but so your first time then going into actual combat is with the, the SBS. It's not with uh, Paris and before. No, no. Yeah. SBS. Yeah. So, so yeah. So, so you get there and now you're going in. So, but up until that time, even though the war on terror had been going on, you were, you, you had Kosovo. Uh, yeah. And then now, boom, now you're jumping in. Yeah. Well, I, when the lads first went in, in 2001 to Afghan, I was instructing on the commander course. So I just sat and watched it. it. And it's quite frustrating. But then when yeah. I went in this time, in my first time, boots on ground was the first ever operational jump for the SPS. So not only That's was I go, yeah. So it was like you know you hit the ground with a with a fud. So, yeah. So for me it was really it was really good. And 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 then all right, all right now is now is my time. And because they always say be careful what you wish for. You know what I mean you do. It's, it's hard when you're seeing guys go in and you're like I wanted to, I want to be on that all back. Um, but mm. especially in 2001 when it first kicked off, you know you're like. You know, it's going to be over soon. And here we are. Exactly. We are That's what we all later. thought. We thought we we're going to miss it. And then uh, that obviously was not the case. But uh, yeah, exactly. yeah, we were deployed at the time. And we thought for sure, we're like, oh, man, we're deployed. We might get it. And then we're on planes and we're headed to the Middle East. And we think we're going to Afghanistan. But instead, we land in Kuwait and take Team, team Three's mission, which was doing yeah. the shipboardings um, for the UN embargo out of Iraq. And so we did those, which was actually pretty interesting looking back on it. But at the time, we're like, oh, man, we're missing it. Team three's going into Afghanistan. We're doing the shipboarding operations. And now we're going to miss this whole thing. And that was obviously not how it how it turned out. But that's what we everybody thought at the time. Everybody who wasn't deployed yeah. was back in the States was like, oh, we missed it. Dang. Because yeah. that's that's, that was the model up to that point. If you weren't there in the right place at the right time, you missed Grenada. You missed Panama. You missed Mogadishu. You you. you that's it. Yeah, and that's, 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 that's kind of what, that's what our heads were. And uh, now here we are, twenty years later, uh, and the guys have been getting after it for this last uh, last twenty years. Yeah, so I I, I I caught it up tenfold when I went there. You know, I was doing you know and right at the spear end of it, which was great. But but yeah, my my September eleventh. I always remember my September eleventh. I literally just landed that morning from Cyprus. We had a two week football tournament five nine in Cyprus. Um, just got back and we were the unit, the whole of free commander brigade were just about going and exercise the following week called exercise safe Syria. It's a huge exercise in Oman. And so we were all getting prepared for that. And then my old, um, I got a phone call that morning that an army advanced diving course had started that morning. And one of the guys had failed the, the physical entrance test. So my friend rang me and said, look, if you want, I can get you on this course. You can be here. If you get here tonight, you'll be on tomorrow morning. And like I said, the Army Advanced Diving Course was then a step up in pay as well. So I was like, yeah, straight on it. And then literally two hours after agreeing to that, the first plane hit the towers. And of course, I had already committed to go on this advanced diving course, knowing that everyone's going to Oman, then thinking they're going to forward mount. And as you said, uh, I'm going to miss the opportunity. But, you know, no, there was plenty of time to catch that up. Yeah. Yeah, and then you got to operate at that tip of the spear up until you had your your accident. You're doing direct action. You're doing uh, reconnaissance stuff, and you're just getting after it with the uh, with the SBS for that. Uh, yeah, I was, that, no, I was, that whole time. I was loving it. Yeah, you know, yeah, all that direct action, uh, hitting HVTs, um, you know, door kicking in the night and in the daytime. You know, I was doing surveillance jobs as well. You know, I, I thoroughly thoroughly enjoyed it, and then. I just touched on pre-deployment training again. We went out to, we do ours in Oman. We go out to Oman. Um, we've got a great facility there because it simulates, you know, you can do all your mobility stuff. You can do your air assets and things like that. So we were doing a hey-ho jump, a high-altitude, high-opening jump. And um, I think it was my third or fourth jump of the day. And we've done hundreds of these jumps before. We were already qualified from previous tours, but the new lads had come through 
they needed to get qualified. So it's always good as unit to, to jump together. And I, I, I normally I normally get to the front of the stick. I like to be the front of the stick and do, as you know, frogging. I like to then just, you know, frog back in and, you know. Nice. Um, so this time my, my, uh, my, my team, my TL was like, ah, you get in the middle and bloody frogging because it was upsetting the, the PGIs. And um, <laughs> as I exited the aircraft, my leg got caught in the line above my head. And I was frantically trying to clear it. Unlike, obviously, Halo, where you're free of lines, this is a static line. So I'm, I'm trying to clear it in time before the parachute fully opens. And I couldn't clear it. And my leg got pulled over my head and to the right. And thankfully, my, my heel did clear and, and didn't take my leg completely off. And straight away, the pain was so severe that I was, I was vomiting. Um, and at 15,000 on the way down, you're vomiting. Way, yeah, meantime. on the way down. Yeah. And you're at 15,000 feet because that's the limits. That's the limit before you then need to go onto oxygen. Mm. So the air is so thin that I'm also, you know, drifting in and out of consciousness and but there's vomit all down me. I mean, I can, I can hear on the radio, I can see the guys in front of me, but there's no point in me coming up on the radio chat to say I've hurt my leg. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that. yeah. What, what, right. what What's someone going to do? Yeah. What are we going to do? Uh-huh. So, um, so just stayed with them, stayed with them. Um, you know, we traveled up to about 30 minutes in the air. So you know that you're not getting down anytime quick. Stay with them. And, and I saw the approaches of the parachutes. I saw the NATO T and then I just, I just came in because I thought I need to time this right. If, miss, if I misjudge it, I could lose, I could damage my good leg. So oh. timed it right. I did a one-legged landing, but fortunately, you know, the damage sustained that I, I wasn't going on that tour. I tore my my ACL, my MCL, my lateral meniscus in the knee, my hamstring, my calf, and my quadriceps, all the, all the supporting muscles. Because normally with an ACL, you, you can still, still walk with the supporting muscles, but they'd all gone as well, so I had nothing to support it. So um, wow. that was it. Yeah, unfortunately, even there was a spiral of issues with my medicals and things like people losing paperwork. And I couldn't get back initially because the Icelandic volcano, which grounded all air flights, traffic, had happened. So the lads went on to Afghan, but on military flights, um, but trying to get back on an aeromed, it took about four yeah. weeks. So I was just thrown oh. into a hotel with painkillers and just no I, way. I started deteriorating. Yeah, got back, sent uh, home for six weeks uh, sick leave, came back and they'd, they'd lost all my paperwork and we had to, you know, so it's ten weeks of that initial, because, you know, if you can get it, capture that initial bit, you know, there, there is scope for recovery. But, um, yeah, unfortunately, it was a spiral of efforts, uh, um, errors. And, um, uh. yeah, I, that was the end of my career. So that was 16 years now that I, I was in the military. And I didn't plan on leaving. I was, a, as well, as yeah. before, a career soldier. You know, I had plans to stay in and, you know, you know, get commissioned and just maybe do a desk job later on. But, uh, so, yeah, that, yeah, that was me. Unfortunately, I had to leave. But my... You, you hear horror stories about people leaving their transition. My wife, Alana, is very entrepreneurial. You know, she she runs all our businesses. You know, at the time she was running all the uh, the banks, Santander banks in the northeast. So she set up my first security company on her BlackBerry because you know I didn't I didn't have time to do. You know, normally when you leave the military, you have like a two year build up where you can go yeah. do all your career transition workshops and decide what you're going to do, set up businesses. I, I had 48 hours and I, I was gone. So, um, wow. it, you know, I didn't have any lead up. So with the skill sets that we have, you know, without sounding like Liam Neeson, our natural progression is the private security industry. So, so that's where I ended up. And, um, yeah, Alana. Yeah, it gets, these things get really interesting at this point. I mean, you, uh, in the book, 
here. I mean, it's, it's fascinating. And like, you don't talk about Af- Afghanistan, you know, you, you, yeah. uh, uh, that you, you get to this, this point, is this 2010 or 2011 where you can, you can use your leg again and you're like, okay, now I'm, I'm going to set up these security company. Yeah. 2010 was the injury. And I got out in 2011. I, I actually got okay. out. I had to extend me getting out because they, it took 44 weeks for me to get on the operating table. You know, again, it's just oh my an issue, you know, and they, and they have to try and return you to civilian service as close as it was. You as close, yeah. <laughs> right. So yeah, yeah. it gave me an operation. I mean, you know, for me, I was already focused about my next career. And so I had the operation and left, wasn't interested in the, in the physio because I, I just wanted to now support my family. And my wife is now eight months pregnant. So within 48 hours, I got a phone call from my friend and the Arab spring was in full, you know, full. Yeah. And Gaddafi was now contained within Tripoli. All the security companies, NGOs, media were now all in Benghazi. And I was asked if I could set up, help set up the DFID project, Department for Institute Development for the British Embassy mm. in Benghazi. So yeah, I went out there. Um, so for me, it's like, well, I'm earning money, you know, takes a bit of pressure off me knowing that I can, there is work out there and I can support my family. And uh, went out there and we were given, uh, I was the team leader, we were given MP7s. These, um, which the are um, oh, yeah. UK police use with a certain has a certain ammunition, yeah. which you know you can't get. Yeah, yeah. You no, know, so I've right. Like, yeah, yeah. Well, what's the point in that? We've only got as much ammunition. So, maybe, but actually, when I got on the ground, because I got there before the rest of the, um, uh, the, the the guys were arriving a week later, I, I made a quick assessment that actually the Libyans were protecting us. They were very thankful we were there, and mm. I thought, well, actually going to give us a wrong impression if we're going to be cutting around in our own sort of style of weapons. So I, I had all 30 weapons boxed in my room and they told the guys we, we don't need them. So when they actually came over a week later, they've all come from Afghan and Iraq, totally different mm. theaters, totally different threats. Um, and I had to sit down and sort of explain, so we don't need these. Um, so it was quite hard for them to get, but it was the right decision. And like I said, the Libyans didn't want it being another Afghan or Iraq. You know, once Gaddafi uh-huh. fall and they wanted to take control and stuff like that. So, so I, I picked that up, picked that up quite early, and then also picked up that these other security companies. You can see them all coming in, the big players as well. You know, I call them the big five, and they're all charging ludicrous amounts of money for security and offering offering all these crisis management and evacuation plans, which we'll touch on shortly, which they're still not delivering in a, in a, in Afghan. And um, yeah. so I was at. Well, I was trying to find a niche within the industry. I thought. Well, there may be an opportunity here. Me and my wife lived in Aberdeen, which is like the the UK equivalent of Houston. So it's all the oil okay. and gas, the North 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 Sea oil and gas. We have four hundred um, rigs offshore, so um, a lot of oil and gas companies. So I, I, Alana went. I went back. Alana gave birth to our daughter, and I said, "Look, I'm going to take the money out of our account." There was a huge proliferation of weapons at the time in Libya. So I took it by myself, bought 30 weapons on the black market, and I, you know, got loads of pelly cases shipped in, and I just buried them between Tunis and Egypt and just designed my own evacuate um my own caches and evacuation plans. So put comms kit in there, some money. Because my sort of mindset was if if it does go the way that they're, they're anticipating and they don't want security with weapons, then if there is a a scenario and you need weapons, it's good to know that there are some available if needed. So that's where my sort of mindset was spent a month doing that and i then sold it to a couple of the oil and gas providers in in aberdeen and just sat on it thinking you know we're not gonna we're not gonna need it um but we did in the end 
Andrew, so so this is your own company that you started that you're yeah. doing all this with? This is my so own you went down, you got a contract right out of the gate, just you. And, yeah, yeah, and was, you go and you get the guys and you go work that your own contract rather than going to work for one of these big five or, or somebody else to kind of see how they're doing it. You just jumped right in. Yeah, well, I was, I, I set up my own company and then, you know, some of the big five were also reaching out. Um, so for me, I didn't want to go Afghan and Iraq. You know, I saw that the money was in the corporate close protection. Um, mm. So I ended up, for one of them, I ended up basically covering Africa, uh, all over Africa for one of the big five. Um, but for me, it was great because I was like, I was learning a lot about the different cultures. I was seeing stuff that when you're in the military, you, you know, you have a mission, you have an objective and you, and your intelligence is what, whatever you're being told. When you're actually, as a civilian, you know, you've got more insight, you've got more, you're seeing a lot more than uh, what you were in, in the military. You know, some of the places I go, like Somalia, Yemen, Nigeria, yeah. and places like that. Where you're S all over the place. Yeah, we're SFR, but they're there as observers. So actually, I was doing more sensitive jobs as a private security guy and being able to relay a lot of that intelligence back up the chain mm -hmm. as, uh, as well. So in a short period of time, I was learning a lot and I took the risk of going ad hoc. Some, I, some guys would like to have the comfort of knowing they're on a six-week six retainer, six weeks on, six weeks off. Mm -hmm. But to me, you know, I'm very fortunate my wife was um, comfortable with that. I, I did ad hoc. So each phone call was different. You know, one phone call, can you take the UAE Royal Family Supiot from Barcelona to Maldives? Yeah, okay. Then the next phone call, you're out in Erbil training the Kurdish Special Forces or the Presidential Close Protection Team. You know, yeah. you had the London Olympics, you had the World Cup. So I was really learning a lot about the industry as a whole, uh, and especially more the corporate element of it as well. I mean, you you went, you seem to keep coming back to Libya though, but you you hit Libya, you're in like, what, Guyana, you're in Somalia, you're, you're in uh, you're working with the Kurds in Iraq, you're in Yemen, uh, you're back in Benghazi. Come, I mean, you're like all over the place, but you seem to keep coming back to Libya for, for whatever reason, maybe come the, cause that was the first place you went or for a lot, a lot going on there at the time as well. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. How did, why did you keep going back to, uh, to Libya? Cause I was there from the start, you know, we built our relationships from the, from the start. And so there was a lot of work going on in Libya. So I'd always be bouncing back in, into Libya. Mm -hmm. We then had a local partner, um, in, in Libya as well, which is a Libyan security company. And I trained and trained up a load of Lib because the Libyans didn't have any work. And I ended up doing a close protection course um, for one of the big five companies, actually. They said, look, can you do a close protection course? I did it. So they like subcontract you to do that sort of thing? Subcontract me to do yeah. that because I think what was happening, this was before it all kicked off again. It looked like it was going to start to get peaceful. And a lot of these um, expat corporates were coming in, but they didn't want to start charging, didn't, didn't want to be paying top, top fee for, mm -hmm. you know, um, expat close protection. So we, we get, they get, I think the big, one of the guys gave them the option of a tier two or tier one. So tier two is a local, which I thought would be, mm. is actually tier one because they have the knowledge, they have the language and, and yeah. everything else. So I, I ran this training course for them and they ranged from doctors to lawyers. They just couldn't have no work. So, but they're very intelligent guys. But what they did is they then all, they did the course, ignored the big five and went and set up their own security companies. So I'd all, hey. I'd, then, I'd then built relationships with these guys. And so I had a lot of connectivity with them. So every time there was stuff always bringing me back to, back to Libya. Um, so yeah, that of, of all the countries, that's where I had vast knowledge. 
Yeah, I know. It's fascinating in, in the book. I love reading this part and then are all those parts. And I'm like, he keeps going back to, to Libya. I mean, it's fascinating, mm-hmm. but you're also there. Uh, one of the times that you're there, it's on September 11th, 2012, yeah. um, when you're in, in Libya and man, Benghazi, of course, yeah. for us, it's Benghazi. And, uh, I knew Ty Woods and Glenn Doherty. Um, we were in the SEAL teams together. Um, but, uh, so, so what do you see happening around that event while you're there? And then what, uh, what, then what do you do as, uh, as part of that, uh, that, that event yeah so i just returned it must have been 48 hours before i just finished the london olympics uh and so i was out in in benghazi having meetings and they um there's a company uh, an oil company kta Doitag, and they wanted to go out into because all the people don't realize actually the oil is over in the um in the east in benghazi and all the politics are in the west and this is why there's lots of issues because obviously the east have the oil, but the politics are making the uh, in the West are making the decisions. So we were there, and then it all then just blew up on September 11th. You know, we, we could hear it from where we were, and, and then it was like we need to get out of the city. Um, so I went to pick these guys up from their office, and it was just me and my fixer. And you, I think they were expecting, obviously, like you know, a whole team, you know, two, two, uh, two armored pickups with maybe eight guys with MVGs on and things like that. And I said, yeah. I said, I'm your escort. And I, I had my drivers who were from Benghazi. And then we went out to, um, I had a safe house in Zella, which is between, um, it's out in the desert. So you're not taking the coastal road. It's out in the desert. Uh, you push out south. And, but yeah. you can actually drive from Benghazi to Tripoli in a day. It's not that far. But the issue I had was I can't take my drivers from Benghazi into Tripoli. They're just from the different tribes. And that itself okay. would bring attention to us. Um, there was no direct threat to the clients. So we, we laid up in the safe house uh, for just short of 48 hours. And obviously we saw it all unfolding on the news. But the German engineers were getting quite twi- twitchy because they understand that Tripoli is not far. And it's like, well, why are we here? And I couldn't really tell them and I couldn't tell the Benghazi drivers. But I had other drivers coming in from Tripoli. Okay. Um, and so on the morning that we decided to then move, um, it was like a, a standoff for the OK Corral because the Tripoli drivers had arrived, the Benghazi drivers, again, they don't get on anyway. The Benghazi drivers, because I hadn't told them, they'd shaved all their beards and I couldn't tell them. And I, I did feel for them in the end. But I think it was more they're worried that they weren't going to get paid. I said, no, you guys, you know, paid and a bonus. Don't worry. But I, I mean, I sort of explained to them, I can't take you to Tripoli. You know, you will expose and you're more of a threat. Than, uh-huh. than us, um, and so yeah, so that, that and so it was quite a simple project. It just took, you know, two and a half days to get them there, which you know you could drive in probably about eight to nine hours. But it was just understanding the the, the demographics, the tribal influences, you know, yeah. and, and things like that. So that that was, um, you know, that was quite a success. And yeah, very, no, that's very, amazing. Yeah, very low key. And, and are you in um, in local type vehicles? Or are you in like up armored Humvee, Land Cruiser uh, type thing? Or what's your what's your profile doing something like that? Profile is always low profile. You know, you, in, in Libya especially, the the embassies would all have you know B six armored vehicles, and they and they also to bring attention to themselves, they all decided to have red number plates. So any red number <laughs> plate, any red yeah. number plate was an embassy vehicle or a diplomatic vehicle. And then it'd it have a number at the end. So like 21, for example, would be UK. So you know that that is a British. So you know, for us, it was very low profile. Keep it low profile as well, because that just draws attention to you. And if we ever saw any of those B6 vehicles, I always said, just, just 
you know, get away from them um, because they are targets. There was, um, yeah. there was an incident in Benghazi where one of the, the British, one of the British oh. embassy vehicles got RPG'd um, and that wouldn't have happened if it was low profile. Yeah. And in your fixer then, is he like a, a trusted agent that you've known over the years type thing? And he knows the, the culture and the language and the politics and can read, read the local scene, that sort of a thing. Is he like your kind of your right hand local guy when you're doing something like that? Yeah. The success of any of these, whether in Somalia, Yemen, Libya is having the right, the best fixer. You know? And the fixer for your audience is like someone who, who understands the country he has has influence in the country at some point and know you know he's got a good chain of command you know they'll go out and sort out source out drivers and stuff and give you a lot of an intelligence picture so my fixer uh in tripoli um i'll just give his first name his name's abu Bakr, but he um he's actually he was a 50 year old internet shop owner from worcester in uk but he was yeah he was libyan born but he understood he understood the Western way that we work and you understand yeah. the, the Libyan way, but it's like, you know, shway, shway, you know, it's like, you know, inshallah, you know, they, they take their time. So it was good, good for that. But also his cousin was the president of the GNC, which is the new government. So that had, oh wow, that had pull on the West, but I couldn't use Abu Bakr in the East. And I had to have another fixer for there who was of a similar yeah. sort of background from him. So yeah, fixers were, were crucial. And, and as I say, everyone's very quick to tarnish these communities, but the success of some of these projects, they wouldn't be successful if it wasn't for these people laying us up in safe yeah. houses, as we're seeing now in, in Afghanistan as well. Oh. So, oh my gosh. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, and, and when you're doing something like that, are you the only one armed if you're doing that or are you armed at all? Or are you just like, how's, how's that working? I wasn't armed at all, but the, the location of my uh, caches were, you knew where they are. <laughs> yeah, you're, they're not if you need to get to houses. Them. Yeah, they're strategically placed close to the safe houses. So, so no, thankfully, I, I never needed to be to be armed. Um, it's more intelligence led. You no, know, moving at the right time and and letting people know who need to know that you're moving through their area, especially the tribal elders. And then, I mean, you're there for a few things. You're there for another time when uh, when uh, our our, our tier one special operations unit comes in and does a, does a hit. And you're at the same time, you're working on something completely separate, but you yeah. get kind of thrown in with them because you're a Westerner. You, the, the timing was right. And then, so how did that uh, impact what you did going forward? Um, yeah. So for me, it was, it was just, um, you know, everyone has this perception of special forces of, you know, and, and Hollywood help, you know, doesn't help, you know, offensive action, which, which is what we're, we're good at. You know, we, you know, 20, but that's 25% of what we do. So my time and experience, so I understood what was going on in the city. I understood what those guys, they were doing that 25% uh, offensive action. Yeah. 50% of what we do in the special forces, as you know, is, is support and influence it's hearts and minds being embedded with locals, you know, training them. So this is, this is where my sort of skill sets, from SF came into play. You know, we didn't need to do the offensive action. As, you know, you assess the situation. There's no direct threat to us. You know, um, so you know we didn't need to be armed. But it was just understanding those tribal influences and then understanding the more the, the geographical picture um, as well. You know, because a lot of people may hastily just drive straight across. You know, we need to get strictly as quick as possible. But that that hastiness and not really understanding the bigger picture could compromise you. And, that, and that's where sort of my knowledge and what I learned from my time in the SF was that it was almost like 
well, let's just lay up. There's no no immediate threat. You know, we're far enough from the city. Let's see what's what intelligence reports we're getting in from both sides. Because as you know, you know, <laughs> a lot of them are contradicting. Um, yeah, yeah. And, 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 and like regroup, then let's make our assessment from there. So it was very quick that I was getting these reports. And, uh, and for me, it was like, right, well, we'll lay up we'll get drivers and, and things like that. So very the opposite of what was going on with your, your tier one guys in the city. Um, yeah. So they come in, they do a hit. And also at this time, and during that particular time, you've uh, met with the prime minister and they're kind of trying to pull you over into doing something a little different yeah. than you've been doing up to this point. It seemed like in the book anyway, it seemed like they're, uh, they're, they want you to kind of uh, not raise a mercenary army, but they're, oh, they're sorry, seeing... Yeah. If you can kind of do some things that are a little little outside what you might have been comfortable with, uh, yeah. of certainly in the wheelhouse, but might have been blurring some lines or doing something that uh, that were making you making you think twice. Yeah, no, I know. I, sorry, I mixed up your tier one with the Benghazi, with the tier one in Tripoli. Now I know where. Yeah, yeah, you're, yeah, you're all right. Yeah, so that was another situation. So, um, so yeah, I just come out of Yemen in 2013, and um, my mate rang me and said, "Look, Dean, where are you?" And, and I was actually just landed Dubai. I said, "I'm in Dubai," and he said. Um, can you be in Libya tomorrow? And I said, well, I haven't got a visa. He said, you know, don't need a visa. Which was strange because of my previous times in Libya, I know yeah. that, you know, it's very visa, visa heavy. So okay. I landed, I landed in, Lib- in Libya and this gentleman met me, um, took me through, bypassed immigration and met my friend. And he said, look, we we're going to meet the prime minister of Libya. Um, he speaks no English. He's a German. He's come from Germany. Um, and the health minister will, will translate. So earlier on in that week, Still, uh, the militias had shut down the oil terminals on the north coast, mm. uh, which was exporting the oil. And so this was within the 48-hour period of that happening. So we had this meeting, and he explained the situation. And he sort of said, look, how do we deal with it? So I'm, I'm looking from a military perspective. I'm trying to count, get numbers in my head. And I'm like, well, I probably need about 150 guys. We need to simultaneously hit all targets. You know, not, not give them any warning that's going to be happening. You have the options from the sea. You know, I'm just throwing it out there, just giving them a quick, quick summary of how we could potentially do it. Uh, you know, come from the sea, come from the land or whatever, but leave the flank open. He's like, no, I don't want the flank open. So I looked at my friend and he's like, this has been sanctioned, is that really? Um, so he said, look, go away and, and make your plan. So every day, you know, we went away and... Um, I soon, within a week, we ramped up 150 guys. You know, 50 were tier one, about 70 tier two, and then all the logistics. Um, and we started planning this this full on operation. And every evening, I would meet the prime minister, and you know, give him an update, uh, tell him where we were. The problem I had is I had guys coming in and kit coming in. It was trying to hide them because no one knew this was going on. And you know, a, a lot of the the bigger security companies, I knew a lot of the country reps, and they were like. What are you up to, Dean? You know, could they see these sort of uh-huh. you know, strangely built individuals coming in? And I said, Oh, you know, I'm just reviewing my evacuation plans and they're like, ah, oh, yeah. And then um <laughs> so so this went on for about three, three odd weeks. And the prime minister then said to me, said, Look, I, I need to leave tomorrow. I'm going to the UN uh conference in New York. You know, please please uh brief the health minister as and when uh every evening. So the next evening I went upstairs, health minister was there. He actually turned out not to be the health minister, but a hospital manager from London. But he's the only one that the prime minister could trust. This gentleman's over my left shoulder, large gentleman, big bushy tash and, you know, slightly overweight. And he says, you no, know, he starts screaming Arabic. 
at the hospital manager and I just pulled my chair back, let them finish him. And he speaks perfect English. He's like, who are you? And I told him who I was, told him what we were doing. And he's like, ah. he said, no one in government knows this is happening. The prime minister is doing this off his own back. So I was like, okay. And he said, look, do you mind if we can, you know, pause it or slow it down? And I said, yeah, of course. Because actually money-wise, you know, what we were getting was three or four times as much on a normal daily rate in the industry. So I said, yeah, of course. So I said, well, look, I'll design, <laughs> I'll design a special forces training program for you. One for the East in Benghazi and one for the West in Tripoli, because I know they're not going to work together. Mm-hmm. That way, you know, it, it would then explain why there's equipment arriving, why there's guys arriving. It would almost be that umbrella. So we did this for about another week or so. And then, you know, it was being funded by another organization I can't name, but, you know, it was hemorrhaging money. And so we said, well, look, if it's, let's let's come back to this another day. It needs to get cleared through government anyway and things like that. So I started sending the guys back. And me and my mate, one of my best mates, we were the last two to leave. And we, we, we the last evening we're in the uh, Moroccan restaurant on the top of the hotel, which is open air. We could hear the distinct sound of this AC-130. But we all know what an AC-130 sounds like. Well, that, it's an AC-130. But on our recce's, during this period, we'd gone to Melita Airport, which is a military air base uh, north, uh, just um, east of Tripoli. And there was four AC-130s, but they were grounded. They were US, ex-Sudan Air Force. They weren't working. Uh, so thought nothing of it anyway. But then the next yeah. morning, yeah, next morning, all over the world's press, Delta Force had come in, picked up the AQ terrorists responsible yeah. for the Kenya and Tanzania bombing. So obviously, it was great success and great operation. But you can imagine how difficult it was for me and my mate to get out of Libya. Because we yeah. obviously looked apart. People knew that we'd been right. coordinating. Doing something stuff. a little different. Yeah. yeah, there's something now. They didn't know what was going on. So it was very difficult getting out of the country. Got out of the country anyway and sort of laid up for a couple of weeks. About three days later, when the prime minister had got back, he got lifted from the air, uh, the hotel by the militia. And of course, then people thought that was us as well. And that no, wasn't us. So um, I came back in two weeks later and, you know, I was... I was trying to win contracts. So I was getting some contracts, you know, but I wasn't getting the big ones. I wasn't getting the NGOs or the, the big oil and gas. And I met a friend who's ex-SCS from PwC. And he said, look, I said, Dean, everyone thinks you're mercenaries. I'm like, really? He said, you know, it was sanctioned at the top level. He said, yeah, we know that. But from a corporate perspective, it looks like you're almost guns for hire. So that was sort of a bit of a stain on my reputation within Libya for a period of time. And so... That, that's I was reading that I had these visions of executive outcomes from back in the day, you know, yeah. in Sierra Leone and, and yeah. that sort of thing. It looks like, uh, you know, things were headed that direction possibly. Um, but then, so, but you go back and then you come back, I think maybe one more time. And that's the, uh, the uh, evacuating the Canadian contingent and using that's fish it, trucks yeah. and, 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 and then what was that about? Like that was, that was pretty wild. Yeah, so I'd, I'd been in and out of Libya still a couple of times since, but then I was out in Brazil doing the World, covering the World Cup. And what happened now is the Tripoli War, which is a civil war between the militias and the government. Um, so that job with the prime minister was um, September 13. This was now July 14. And so I got a phone call from the Canadian embassy. They'd obviously heard about the Benghazi stuff and other things, and they said, look, your name keeps coming up, you know, situation is here everyone's gone the americans brits italians are already left and they they were still stuck behind they're stuck behind because they were shredding or that they're not going back in whereas the other embassies were coming back in so they 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 got um caught behind and so um 
And they said, your name keeps coming up. They had, there was 18 military and four diplomats. They had their own CP team, uh, things like that. But they'd never left the walls of Tripoli. Is it, the, the coastal road is only 100 kilometers to the border. Mm. And I'd already got a couple of guys out from, for USAID in low-profile vehicles, in little taxis, just got them straight across. Again, not drawing any attention to them, but using my fixer, because his family from Zwala, which is on the border. So again, having okay. those right contacts, and we had safe houses along the way. So I flew back in from uh, Brazil into Tripoli and, you know, liaised with their CP team, but they had no insight of what was going on outside of, of their accommodation in Palm City. So a week before the British embassy got shot at every checkpoint um, in the B6 vehicles with the red number plates, and so me and my, me and Abubakar went out and we spoke and we did all the intelligence stuff. We spoke to the tribe, didn't speak to the guys with the guns, spoke to the tribal elders, told them what our, our plan was, our objective, and when we were doing it. And it was actually all about respect and communication. And, and you know, they appreciated it. And actually, where the Brits got shot at, one of the main towns, we then got escorted when we came out because they knew we were coming. And, and it, you know, it was just a different approach rather than just, that hasty, that hasty move uh, is right. high time, you know, assess the situation. So, yeah, so they were in their vehicles and then myself and Abu Bakr in a soft vehicle uh, ahead of the convoy, you know, speaking to the, the checkpoints, you know, liaising, you know, harming some, some, some hands with cash, as you do, yeah. uh, and then just safely got them through. Yeah, so evacuated the Canadian embassy, 18 men. We had UAV coverage as well from the, from the, from the border, but... Obviously, they could only, because they're diplomatic vehicles, no one's allowed to go in, enter their vehicles. They had much more kit than that. So their, their issue was the kit. So again, rather than having vehicles attached to them, because people will be wondering what those vehicles are, every day from Tripoli, there's fish, fish, fish wagons, which take fish from Tripoli into Tunis. So they do that route every day. They know the borders. They know the things. So that's what I did. I, I employed two fish wagons. Uh, who do that route all the time. And we put all this, and it was a lot of it was sensitive kit as well, put it in there. Well, the sense, a lot of this more sensitive kit was with them, but there was stuff in there which was just too bulky for their vehicles. And you could see yeah. they were a bit nervous about it, but they, they got straight through. They were actually in there before we were. So, um, so it's just another approach, um, a low profile, you know, in fish wagons that do it daily. So That's incredible. So you're like the guy to call to evacuate from these kind of, uh, you know, these, these kind of situations. I mean, you got quite the, quite the background in the military yeah. at the, at the tip of the spear in the military. And then here doing these, uh, the, the in the, in the private sector. I mean, yeah. it's, it's incredible, especially all around the world, but in particular, the, the expertise and understanding mm -hmm. of, uh, of Libya and what's going yeah. on on there is, is astounding. But then you get back from this one is, and is this when things start to change? Cause yeah. uh, anybody who's listening to this, they're probably like, this guy has the most understanding wife in the planet um, <laughs> <laughs> running around the world, even when he's out of the military. How's he pulling this off? But uh, you have a conversation with her, I think, somewhere around uh, around this time. Um, and I think a lot of lot of uh, operators and can can relate to the the conversation that you had with uh, with your your wife then. Yeah. Um, and uh, and she hands you the Guinness Book of World Records. That's it. Says, yeah. Yeah. So I came something. Back. Yeah, I came back from that trip and, you know, the great thing from that, that conversation I had with my friend from PwC, that that evacuation brushed any any sort of reputation off. And, and actually, I, I, I charged $7,000 for the whole evacuation. I took no money on it. And that was, you know, because for me, it was the right thing to do. 
But reputation-wise within the security, that stain had gone and I put myself on the top of the pile. So there was a lot more impact on that. But I came, uh, as you said, I came back from that trip and my normal SOP would be, you know, launder my clothes, pack my bag, ready for the next ad hoc phone call. And my wife, one of my shirts was covered in blood because I was administering first aid at an RTA on the border. And my wife was like, how did you get blood in there? And uh, I sort of told her about the crash. She was aware about the, the evacuation stuff because she coordinates a lot of stuff in the background. And she, she, she made me aware that I'd only been home 21 days in a 365-day calendar. My dad had passed away that year, um, and I literally buried him and went straight on a task to South Africa. So I hadn't really sort of addressed that. So the pin dropped really that I disconnected myself from society, from normal society. I was trying to match the adrenaline rush that I had when I was still in the Special Forces, as you touched on, which a lot of the veterans can relate to, um, without actually coming to terms with the fact that I left. So, so, you know, chapter 16 in the book's called Dead or Divorced. This is the stage we're at now. And my wife said, <laughs> you, you know, you'll either be dead or divorced if this continues. My wife was very, you know, very successful, successful entrepreneur. She had a property developed business and said, look, come do this with me. And my injured leg was now was two kilos lighter than my good leg um, because of the muscle wasted. So, I, I bought a push bike, um, just cycled to and from the office, only about eight miles there, eight miles back. Um, but straight away, being physically active again, doing some cardiovascular, you know, I, I felt good. And my wife, with my backstory, my wife could see I had no interest in property development. And um, <laughs> you know, it was about a month before my 40th birthday, so I was having a midlife crisis about being uh, being old. And so I, uh, I said, well, I've always fancied a world record. And she said, well, what in? I said, well, cycling seems to be good. It's not impacting my knee. So she, as you said, she threw the Guinness Book of Records and we started going through it. You know, I'm looking for like Cairo to Cape Town was the one I initially looked at, you know, because yeah. I knew Africa, but I knew Africa and I thought, well, I don't really want to cycle it. Uh, I've, I've done that. Yeah. I want to go somewhere I've never been before. And she then found the world's longest road, the Pan American Highway, which runs from Southern Argentina to Northern Alaska. So I thought, perfect. You know, it goes through all the different temperatures, climates, terrains. Uh, it will test me. And there'll be countries that I've never visited before, which will obviously keep me you know, men mentally engaged. So having only cycled 20 miles, I applied for the world record for the world's longest road. And Guinness came back six weeks later, said, yes, you've been successful on your application. And so, yeah, that, that, was, the, that was the start of the bike campaign. That's incredible. I think people don't really realize that there's a, I mean, growing up in the eighties, the Guinness Book of World Records was a big deal because there was no internet. So it's a huge, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. it's a big deal. Um, but even people that kind of grew up with it and still know what it is, I don't think they realize there's a process you go through to apply. Oh. Uh, I think they think like you open it up, find one, and then get a camera out and try to, you know, <laughs> juggle more eggs than the last guy. But, uh, but you apply for this thing, you find one and mm. Your, your experience now as a cyclist is pretty much um, relegated to the, the stationary bike to rehab your yeah. knee for the most part, I think. And, uh, and so you choose this thing where you don't have a, have a background uh, in bicycling uh, through a country, two countries that you, you don't know. Um, and you want to do it in, you want to beat the last guy. The record was what, 117 days or something that was the last like that. One. Yeah, that was the last guy. And you yeah. want to do it in 110. That's what, that's what you, you think that you can it. do it in. And of course mm -hmm. we'll, we'll get to what you really did it in, which is amazing. But, uh, but then you just decide to, to, to do it and, yeah. and that's your next goal. And then you yeah. want to tie it to a charity and you get to reach out. Of course you, you, uh, had met, um, uh, Prince Harry at one of the, at a close air support school I yeah. think back in 2007. So you guys are uh, 
drinking buddies, we call them in the States. Like he's a, he's a friend and you reach out to him and ask him about how do you raise money and do this stuff with charities and foundations. And so how did all that, uh, how did all that come about and get to you, get you to that start line, which I think yeah, was so, or February of, uh, uh, of 20 was what, February, 2018. Is that when you 2018, did it? Uh, yeah. So yeah. obviously Harry and I met in 2007 and we you know, maintain relationships ever since, um, did a lot in the charity sector behind closed doors, um, especially in the military uh, fraternity. And um, so, yeah, when Guinness came back, I thought, well, I'll ring Harry. You know, he's, he's obviously one of the best in the world when it comes to um, charity work. And I told him what I was going to do. And he, he said, oh, it's amazing. And he, he was about to launch a campaign, him and his brother and Kate were heads together, which is about mental health. Mm. And sort of explained about that. And I thought, you know, that's, let, let, let's focus on that. So, um, so that was, that's what I did. I he then introduced me to the Royal foundation. And we, we started PAH 18. I set a target of a million pounds, um, because it's 14,000 miles, you know, I wanted to, the, the amount of money we were going to raise reflect the challenge itself. You know, you can't, mm. you can't really ask for a million pounds to go run 10 miles, you know, it has to, <laughs> has to be relative. Yeah. Commensurate. Uh, yeah. And then the, um, so we did that. We did a promo video together, which sort of helped. Um, I mean, I started learning about cycling. I wasn't a cyclist, but what I learned from my time in the military and then took in the private security sector, it's all about that planning uh, and execution, you know, a lot of planning involved. And um, and so I just took a military set of orders, put it on there and just crossed out the ammunition. But I wasn't getting the information I needed from the magazines and the books about cycling. And so I spoke to the previous record holders um, and Touched, did the did the hot debrief, you know, what worked, what didn't work. And if you were going to do it again, what would you do differently? And they all started in Alaska, finishing in Argentina, but all their issues were in South and Central America, bureaucracy, right. the borders, languages, spares for the bike. So for me, I thought, well, why not turn it on its head 180? So I started in South America to address those issues. So then when I get into America, you know, we should be in a good position uh, and things like that. So that's one thing I was quite proud of. It just because everyone did it that way didn't mean yeah. you had to do it yourself. So that was my sort of planning approach to it. Um, I had a support team and a documentary team. They were a bit more risk averse than myself. So you had to consider their welfare as well. So there's a lot right. more to it. You know, there's a lot more than just grabbing a banana and a water bottle and a bike yeah. and cycling north. Um, it was <laughs> a military operation. But yeah. The, the, the reason, you know, as you touched on, the world record was 117 days. And I was aiming for 110. And it wasn't because I wanted to smash it by a week. When I'd looked at all the potential scenarios and situations, you know, there's things, there's contingencies that you can do. and But when it came to like natural disasters or coups, there's nothing you can do. And yeah. so if we were going to encounter one of them, I'd rather eat into that week that I'd given, put aside, than eating into the record time. So I yeah. was always aiming for the 110 days. Yeah, no, that's incredible. And you watched, I think you watched The Long Way Around, uh, those guys, you know, the guys that took their bikes around the world and maybe yeah. learned a couple of things there. And then um, what was also cool is you found uh, the bike sponsor. Uh, how do you say it? Orba, O-R-B-A. Obea, Obea, yeah, the Spanish, Obea. yeah, Obea. Yeah, yeah, so you found them. It was super cool in reading in reading the book is that you go down there and they tell you that, hey, this used to be a, uh, a, uh, a weapons manufacturing plant. Mm. We used to make rifles mm. here. And, uh, and now we make bicycles and it was so cool the way you described, like thinking of yourself and that transition and what you're doing now, it, same way with that plant and that company and what it used to make and what they're making now. And it was kind of like this perfect pairing that was super, super cool that, 
that that happened. I mean, what are the yeah, it's amazing. I wasn't aware of that until I visited the factory. But yeah, during the war, they used to make the barrels, the tubing, the tubular. I mean, post-war, they then used that machinery and, and um, experience and then made bikes. Um, yeah, so that, that was quite that was quite cool. But uh, but yeah, you can imagine how difficult it was trying to get sponsorship. But I'd never done anything like this before. No mm. one knew who I was. And, you know, so you should go to some of these blue chip companies and I'd be like, well, I'm going to cycle the world's longest road break world record and raise a million pounds for mental health. I think a lot of them thought I had mental health problems myself. Um, but thankfully, the campaign that Harry had touched on had launched at the London Marathon. So it was very much the focal point and topic of conversation was mm. mental health and getting behind it. And they were all focusing on the, the importance of communication. I was banging the drum on the physical activity, you know, that physical activity helps your mental state. Mm. I, I, initially, I was hit with can't use that because it's not been scientifically proven. I was like, I don't need a scientist to tell me that I feel good right. when I'm training. So I ignored him anyway. I and mean, then obviously years later, it's now been scientifically proven. So that was the, that was the message I was trying to get across on the, on the challenge. Yeah, that was amazing. And then also you found, you found out a lot about fundraising and, and charities and foundation work and all that. And one thing I found was interesting is that uh, some of these different companies that you went to, they were like, oh, uh, yeah, we'd love to help you. Oh, by the way, can, uh, can you bring Prince Harry in here and we'll get a photo op with him with our product or something like that? Um, because I find that with uh, with my novel, it's being turned into a series on Amazon Prime and Chris Pratt is the star. And so I have a publicist with Simon & Schuster who does like bookings and stuff like that. And uh, I remember distinctly, there was there was one that that uh, he wanted to get me on. And they're like, oh yeah, uh, in the if he can come on with Chris Pratt, we'd love to have him. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and we're like, yeah, that's not how it, that's not how it goes. And I, I know you, you ran into that a couple of times during your process here. Yeah, it's quite difficult. You know, you know, it can be an advantage and actually mainly a disadvantage having mm-hmm. someone as high profile associated to it. So, um, so I was really, really interested to see and, and really filter out who was doing it for the right reasons. You know, I had another bike sponsor before Orbea and I said, yeah, we'll do it, but we want Harry sat on a bike. And I was like, we're doing it for the wrong reasons, you know, but whereas Orbea, you know, they wanted to promote the mental health. They wanted to try and hit the target. So yeah, you, you so sort cool. of feel, filtering through all that. Um, but yeah, it can be quite difficult. Yeah. Yeah. No, amazing. And then you start and you start going and, uh, yeah. it's, what, it's February 1st you start or February of 2018 you start. Yeah. February the 1st, you know, originally we're going to start in the March, but I got a main sponsor, uh, a FTSE 100 wealth management company. And they said, look, we've got a, um, We've got an event at the end of January. Can you come down, guest speaking from 10,000 of our staff? Um, and so for me, you know, physically and mentally, I was, I was ready. You know, Alana ran the whole campaign. Alana was doing all the stuff in the background, the fundraising, things like that. You know, she was in a good position, spoke to the support team. You know, they were happy to move it forward as well. So for me, I moved it forward from the 1st of March to the 1st of February so that I would leave Scotland, do all the PR press this launch night and stuff with the, the the sponsor and then fly off. You know, I'm not, it's not uh, disturbing my training. We're, we're then hitting the ground yeah. running. So we did that. And so when we landed, but before we set off the, the St. James place wealth management, they had a fundraising dinner that evening. They raised 265,000 pounds and then matched it pound for pound. So they raised 530,000 pounds on that first night before I'd even set off. So you know, no pressure, you know, I didn't turn the crank and we'd already half a million up. So but that's great awesome. going into it. Yeah. But uh, moving the challenge forward, we were ready, but the shipping container was stuck in Chile 
they couldn't get down to Argentina because of the strong winds. So, um, you know, we had enough kit to get going. The support team were like, well, we can't go without all of our kit. And I sort of went out for a couple hours bike ride and I made the decision again, you know, just did a ground assessment. I was like, well, we have enough kit to get going. We'll start tomorrow. And then the shipping container uh, caught up with us later on when we were in Chile. We picked that up as we went through. But, um, you as, you know, the world record, as you said, uh, was 100, 117 days. You, you're going to have challenges on those on that challenge, but I wasn't expecting from day one, you know, I had a hundred, uh, I had, um, hundred, had 40 mile an hour crosswinds and oh. living in Scotland, I'm used to the wind, but this wind was relentless down in, in Tierra del Fuego. Oh. There's a little gap in it. It just Brutal. kept flowing. Yeah. So I had my targets for the day that I needed to hit. So I was, you know, and there weren't big numbers, only about 90 miles, 95 miles starting off it, but you know, it was a full day cycling. But in the, on the second day, there was a sharp stabbing pain in my good leg. And, you know, we got off the bike, we measured it, you know, everything was where it should be. And we sent the footage to Team Sky, to one of the analysts, and they came back within 24 hours. And because the winds were so strong, I was cycling at a 45-degree angle. Oh, wow. The bike straight, so it was the torsion in yeah. the knee. But mentally, you can imagine on a 100-plus day challenge, and already you're, you're in pain. But thankfully, a week later, the wind subsided, and so did the pain. And then from then on, it was good gains then. I think the worst position I was on the whole challenge was I was 39 miles behind target on the end of the first week, but my target was still a week ahead of the world record. And from then on, the winds, the winds were then worked in my favor or, or were just neutral. And yeah, it was just big gains then all the way through South America. I mean, that's, that's incredible. And did you ever think about security concerns, not just, you know, local threats here and there, but being specifically targeted because of the press surrounding it, because of the connection to Prince Harry, because of your background in the military? Did you ever think like, hey, uh, I have this entire route. They know where I'm going to be for yeah. the next X number of days. Did you ever think of it in those terms? Or were you like, you know what? No, hey, no. I, I did. I did think about, you know, luckily I didn't have as much exposure until I'd actually finished. You know, once okay. we finished, then it, then it was all over the press and, and things like that. And, um, so, you know, you obviously you're going through places like Mexico and, and Colombia, but Colombia, they love cycling. They're a huge mm. cycling fraternity. So actually, you know, I know that, you know, some of my team were like worried and they were panicking and things like that, but they were locked in a, in a vehicle. And, you know, I was probably the biggest threat. But, uh, you know, biggest threat was to me on, on the Lycra. You know, yeah. but, the, but everyone I saw, I didn't see any sort of hostility. And, and like you say, when, when, you're on, when you're on the ground and you're making that sort of assessment, you're, you're sort of, you know, I'm doing it all the time when I'm on the ground. We didn't see any, any sort of hostility or any, any sort of threats at all. You know, my biggest concern was nature. <laughs> it was Mother Nature. Yeah. You know, holding me up. But um, no, you know, I enjoyed, I loved Mexico and I loved Colombia. You know, actually the only issue we had was when we got to Colorado, someone broke into the, one of the vehicles. <laughs> so that, when, I, yeah. when I thought all my, all my, uh, all, right. my all the concerns were actually in the South, it was, it was actually yeah. Colorado. So we're very fortunate <laughs> in, in that. Yeah. Yeah. And then, so I'm going to let people read it in here because it's an amazing story. I mean, obviously you're, you're pedaling a bike from the South of South America, all the way up to North in Alaska. It's an incredible story. I mean, I can't even imagine doing that. Uh, I'll take a motorcycle. Um, I think yeah. if, uh, if I do it, but, uh, it, it, incredible story, absolutely amazing. And then you, I mean, you're dealing with border crossings, you're dealing with the weather, uh, you're dealing with security, you're dealing with team members that, uh, that are having yeah. issues you're dealing with, and you're, 
and, and you have to do the work every single day to meet your target and figure all these things out. But you make it through all these border crossings. You make it up through Mexico. You cross into Texas and then your wife calls you and says, uh, and you're worried initially. You're like, oh, geez, why is she she calling? And yeah. uh, you get invited, of course, to the royal wedding. Yeah. <laughs> well, that, yeah. So, yeah. So I took 10 days off the South America record. Did that in 48 days. And as you said, I got to... Um, I was dealing with all, you know, I call it managing egos. I was dealing with support team. I was dealing with everything else. Actually, I, I call it the challenge behind the challenge, but the bike ride was the easiest part, you know, wow. for me, because I was in my, I was in my own little bubble, you know, I was, I was, and the good thing about me on this challenge compared to other challenges is I, me and my wife planned it. So we knew every point or every part of the project. And that's what kept me busy. I was thinking about the next, you know, phases and things like that. Um, but yeah, as you rightly touched on, we got to North America on day 17. I was 14 days ahead of the world record. I'm like, perfect. You know, I can take, <laughs> take a day's rest here or there, chatting to the previous record holders. All our issues are in South and Central mm. America. And, and within an hour of getting into Del Rio, phone, five missed calls. And Alana's very good. Like I said, she's campaign director, keeps all those, tries to keep all those issues away from me so I can just focus on the job. And so my initial concern was our kids. I thought, there's something wrong no. with the children. Uh, and I rang her back and she said, look, she said, we've been, she goes, what do you, what do you wear to a raw wedding? I said, sorry. And she said, we've been invited to Harry and Meghan's wedding. I was like, all right. I said, when is it? When is it? So, and she, she told me, she goes, but I've, I've done the calculations. She goes, you need to be in Prudhoe Bay in Alaska. The last flight out is day 102. So going into the phone call, I was 14 days ahead. 10 minutes later, I'm now a day behind. I'm a day behind on my new target. <laughs> How things change. Yeah. Oh yeah, all my efforts up until now are like haven't really counted. So there was mixed emotions cycling off. You know, yes, it's nice to be invited to a wedding, but I was cursing him slightly. Um, <laughs> and what does your wife say? Doesn't she say something like, uh, you better start pedaling faster or something along those lines? Yeah, she's going anyway. She's taking she'll take it. <laughs> you know, she, she's plus one. That's right. <laughs> so, uh, so I um but I, I then got to Lubbock in Texas and it was 60 mile an hour winds and tornadoes for the next day. So I'm now two days behind. So there's an app on your phone called Windy TV and it's hmm. popular with sailors and it gives you the strength and directions of the winds forecasted every hour for the next two weeks, quite about 95% accurate. So I just put pen to paper and I had to cycle 340 miles in the next 36 hours to get out of Lubbock. Um, so I, I just put pen to paper and I made a plan and I looked at the weather windows and a lot of the, a lot of the winds were subsiding in the evening, a bit like the mm. desert. You know, the winds die down. They pick up in the afternoon. You know, they die down in the evening. So the, the fortunate thing I had in North America is that I could cycle at night. There wasn't any real security uh, risks like there was okay. back in South America. So I was cycling from first light to last light on the first stage. The second stage, it was like wherever there was gaps in the wind. And so uh, I just played chess with Mother Nature. I got to Cheyenne in Wyoming picked up a 50 mile an hour tailwind and, and hey. I, I cycled 260 miles in 11 hours, you know, so used it in my advantage as well. So yeah. I had 17 days planned for North America and I cycled it in 11 and a half from Del Rio to the Canadian border. And so I thought, perfect, you know, world record secure. Um, we're going to this wedding unless I get eaten by a grizzly. During this whole <laughs> period as well, my wife keeps asking me for my measurements, but I'm still losing weight. You know, I'm, I'm, I started at 90 kilos. I finished at 78 kilos. But I got a, I got a week outside, and we're in a town called Whitehorse. And I uh, got a phone call from a friend saying, have you seen this guy? So there's a guy 
Uh, name is Michael Strasser, professional cyclist, got three other endurance world records, sponsored by Red Bull. You know, he's got all the brands behind him. He'd come out on social media and announced his Ice to Ice project. And he was going to cycle Pan American Highway and be the first man to do it under 100 days. So I thought, oh, great. So when every time I started hitting the new objectives, or the objective kept moving. Mm-hmm. And so for me, I wasn't really comfortable. I knew I had the wheel record. I knew I'd be finished, but I wasn't comfortable in not giving it my all. You know, how, how fast could I do it if I, I kept pushing myself? So I cycled for the last 30 hours. I cycled for 22 hours in minus 18 in the snow in blizzards to come in 99 days, 12 hours and 56 minutes. So it wasn't, it wasn't my initial plan, but I talk about the importance of the planning and the execution. Mm-hmm. The actual the success of this was being reactive to the situation on the ground, you know, and changing the plan yeah. to what was in front of you. So yes, it's nice to have a basic plan, but don't get too hung up if it doesn't go to plan. You know, as we know in the military, things never go to plan. Don't survive first don't survive first contact. And you just That's need to it. react, need to react to that. And so that was the success of this. You know, if I'd known about the world, um, the, the, the royal wedding or this gentleman Michael from day one, it might have pushed me too hard. It may have been mm. too much. You know, I may have pushed myself even harder and then, you know, sort of fallen back on the wayside. So, but luckily uh-huh. I was in a position I could act on it. Oh, I mean, it's incredible. I love the last, as you're describing, like like getting there to the end. It's it's awesome in the book and Relentless. Everybody should check it out. Um, but love that you get to the end. Then you're doing the press again and then you're you're doing all that stuff there and then you you fly out and You've done it now in 99 days. You're the first person to do it under 100, and you make it to the wedding. Yeah, yeah, and 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 for me, I I was just trying to. I, I wish I'd had some time to appreciate what I'd done because from two days from when we landed with the royal wedding, and I I, might, I must have had 30 TV radio interviews mm-hmm. before the wedding, and it was all about the wedding. It was like really, I've just <laughs> two wheel records. Now become the first man in history, raised over one by one point three million dollars for charity, and it was like, you know, what canapes are you expecting? What do you think the drink champagne? <laughs> so I, yeah. I wish I'd had time to appreciate what I'd done, and also I was mentally, I was still trying to come to terms with the fact that I was with my family again, and I'd been mm-hmm. on my own or with a couple of guys for the last three and a half, four months. So I was trying to get back into society to then be thrown into the world's biggest event. (laughs) So, so yeah, it was, it was interesting. And actually day before the wedding, I was outside the castle gates and Harry and his brother came out to do a talk of uh, the tour with the the people. I mean, Harry spotted me on the other side and comes running over. And of course, then that brings more attention to yourself. And, you know, he he made a comment. I looked skinny and did that with his face. And of course, Uh. All the questions then were, is he going to shave his beard? I was like, that wasn't what he said. So, um, but no, it was, it was nice to be at the wedding, but I just wish I'd had time to appreciate what I'd done before I had a second yeah. high as well. Yeah, no, it's incredible. I mean, it's absolutely incredible what you did. And of course in here, there's, I mean, there's a bike crash in here and then you get to this stage in Alaska where the road is closed, which made me think of Chevy Chase's vacation when they all get to Wally World and they say, sorry, folks, park's closed. And you have to figure that out. So you're constantly adapting and dealing with things along the, the journey. Um, but it's, uh, it's amazing. And, and, now, and now you have another challenge. Now yeah, you're going to well, head off down the Nile. Yeah, well, I, I didn't look beyond the bike ride. You know, I didn't 
see a career in guest speaking. I didn't see a book. I didn't see TV opportunities. I did it. So I wasn't smuggling people across borders uh, <laughs> in, in hostile countries. So, so I wasn't prepared. You know, I didn't have a website and things like that. And, you know, the first, que- no, the first two questions were, how was the wedding generally? Uh, and then second, what was next? So I hadn't really looked at that. And so for me, my USP is I like to take a sport that I've never done before mm-hmm. and, and find the biggest challenge. You know, when we did the SWOT analysis on the bike ride, the strengths, the weaknesses, the opportunities and threats, the only weakness came back was my arrogance towards the cycling community. Uh, this 40-year-old <laughs> novice thinks he's going to do this. I mean, not only do it, overachieved, which then just like brought attention to yourself. And and I'm not saying that I'm the fittest, but it's, it's all that life experience being a bit more wiser. So yeah, as you touched on next year, I'm kayaking the River Nile, which is the world's longest river from source to sea. But unlike the Pan American Highway, this has never been done before. It'll be a world first. Um, so I have that. But then obviously the feedback from the book was, Yes, you're a great endurance athlete, but you are a security expert, a security guru. Why are you still not in this industry? So very much still in the background, spinning place, you know, with this recent situation of Afghanistan coordinating and supporting and picking up the pieces where the big five have failed again. And uh, yeah, so, um, but, you know, I I enjoy that. You know, it's my bread and butter and it's something I like to help people, whether it's in charity, whether it's in insecurity uh, as well so yes my my sort of anonymity is gone my surveillance days have gone me physically going in and and taking people to borders are probably over but hopefully i can sort of disseminate my lessons from what and what i've learned in my time but this is a different the afghan evacuation is very different from what i've done before that was physically going in grabbing them escorting them this is a lot more a lot more paperwork and a lot more layers so a bit more bit more Difficult. And so now you're in a stage on the security side of the house, then where you're more in the, would you say in the more in the management position rather than before being the tactical level guy, you're now here operational and strategic level dealing with this up here. And now you have another company or multiple companies that are dealing with those things for you on the ground, doing what you used to do, um, out there, out there for you. That's it. Doing what I used to do. And obviously now I have friends that are now leaving the military themselves and transitioning. So I've been able to help them on their initial footsteps as well, because it is difficult when you leave the military. It's very daunting that you've gone from, yeah, as you know, you've gone from working in close-knit teams, like-minded individuals, knowing what you're doing day out, to what is actually quite alien to us, which is the civilian world. Um, so that transition can be quite difficult. So I, I you know, I, I, I try to help the guys and girls when they're getting out. And if I can push work to them, I do that. So it's not just the hostile stuff, work a lot with the ultra high net worths, the big family offices as well, you know, so we, ours is more intelligence led. It's not so much the Oakleys and the, you know, and, and, and the weapons, you know, I, I, I now live in California and, you know, the first question I get is, you know, what weapon do you have? And actually I don't have a weapon, you know, because I, you know, thankfully never needed to use it yet, but it's more, it's more of an intelligence led approach, very low profile as we've touched on before. You know, I, I stand out a bit more than some of the rest of the team. Interesting. And then, and so for Afghanistan right now, if you're looking at that, that situation, um, obviously, I mean, from the outside looking in, we had 20 years to learn, to deal, to look at what might happen, to prepare for what might happen. And then we have, let's say being generous from April until August, uh, seeing hey Taliban encroaching province after province, falling city after city falling. And then in the U S side of the house, anyway, uh, it seems like 
people went on vacation, they put their emails on, um, and they didn't expect uh, things to fall so quickly. Um, And we gave up what looks like uh, a strategically advantageous position in Bagram and consolidated our forces at a a less advantageous position um, in Kabul, uh, shutting down embassies, uh, really putting our tactical level soldiers, sailors, airmen, and Marines in really an untenable situation, once again, by people who are in temperature-controlled offices in Washington, D.C. So when you see that, what would you, if you were, and maybe you were, um, hired to take a look at that situation, let's say January, February, March, April, May of this last year, and put in place some some plans to get um, but, uh, a small number of people out or a large number of people out. Um, yeah. What would you have been doing during that time frame? Um, and uh, and then when would you have activated those uh, those plans to to start bringing people out? Yeah, I think I think the main main one here is you know. I think we've all underestimated the Taliban and not shown no respect, you know, as we probably did 20 years ago, you know, they are, you know, they are a lot more intelligent. It's that whole understanding the demographics and, and, and the, the society. But I think for me, um, you know, we're very fortunate. We've had a foot on the ground for the last 10 years anyway. So it's all about connectivity. So we've had a good presence there. And, and so we, we, we've got, we're tied into the US intel, the Taliban intel, and, and we have locals on the ground. So we are sort of understood the picture. But we, what we didn't anticipate is how quick everyone would be departing. Um, you know, we still got a lot of people there. And it's very easy. You know, we've got clients there. And it's very easy for us to say, look, you know, everyone's sort of panicked on the lead up to the 31st. I, I mean, I'm in so many WhatsApp groups ranging from getting the Afghan boxing team out to the housewives of Orange County who want to get some guilt. You know, it's, Everyone's just panicking, and, and there's a lot more to these processes than just raising money, getting them to to borders, and hoping. You know, there's there's a lot more in the background. Understanding the safe safe passage. You know, there are a lot of people now, and it's, it's quite hard. It's just hard when I see it on some of these groups because there's people who don't understand the country. They don't understand what's going on, and they're they're giving. The incorrect information and putting people's lives at risk. You know, mm-hmm. what I'm telling our lot is just lay up. We have safe houses, lay up. Things will resume back to normal soon. It's just this period now, but it's easy for us to say when we're sat here mm-hmm. in, in a, you know, in our rooms and difficult when you're on the ground. But um, no, we had things in place. We've always had every, every country that we go into, we always have an evacuation plan or, or process in place, especially the first mile, I call it, you know, who's doing what, taking people to where but what's happened here and it's exposed again the big five you know these big five companies security companies have got great relationships with the insurance providers so when mm. these FTSE 100 and fortune 500 companies are like well we'll reduce your premiums if you use these guys but they've let them down again there's nothing in place i saw it in libya there was an incident early on this year in mozambique with 60 expats got killed as well um and it's it's like, or well, how many times does it have to happen? There's people lining their pockets, these big security companies, but not actually providing the the, the service. Um, so so hopefully, I, I'm I'm going to do a piece soon as well, um, and sort of, and it's not to throw people under the bus. It's more to highlight to these corporates and these NGOs that, you know, when you have these security providers, you know, ask them these questions. You know, mm-hmm. what is it do they have? Who is it in place? Who's taken us? Who's, who's taking us, who's picking us up from our safe house and driving us to, 
you know, because they just take for granted on a bit of paper, the contract that things are in place. And uh, I've seen it numerous occasions that, and obviously Afghan being more so because it's all over the, the media, but this has happened many times before. But, you know, we, as going back to your initial question, we had a process in place anyway. So we weren't caught short, whereas some of the, some of the others were. Um, but for me, um, you know, I've been, I've served in Afghanistan and when it initially kicked off more for, I thought it was a lack of respect for those who'd lost family members there. And, you know, you're hearing stories about people, you know, veterans who asking questions, was it worth it? And I do think it was worth it that we were there. Um, but I think there could have been a more, a better approach in his leaving, be more of a, celebration and a handover or, or something rather than just you know or a ceremony or some of some sort uh, rather than just just leaving but i think optics wise you know they wanted to do it for for, the, for certain reasons you know before the september 11th deadline maybe yeah which is a terrible from in my perspective uh you know maybe maybe a different date i mean we know yeah. dates what they mean in, in other calendars and and what uh what that's going to mean for for the enemy but it's uh it's such a sad situation to to see, especially for those who who came back suffering the the physical and emotional trauma of the battlefield and and those who didn't come back and their families, the parents who lost sons and daughters, the, the brothers and sisters who lost siblings, the uh, you know, it's just it's that that's affecting them too, because they're asking those same questions. You know, what did my son or daughter give their life for? What did my brother or sister give give their life for? Um, which are valid questions to ask. And, you know, for us, I think we we need to honor their sacrifice by taking these lessons like we talked about, you know, a while back and applying them going forward as wisdom. Exactly. Hopefully we do that in our own, our own lives personally. Uh, and we pass that on to our kids, whatever, however big or small our, our circle is, but, uh, but strategically our, our governments and our militaries need to do that as well, because that's what we owe that next generation of soldier, yeah. sailor, airman, and Marine that pick up that rifle in defense of the nation. They have to know that we're going to learn these lessons and apply them going forward. And, you know, from, from what I've seen, we had, you know, 20 years to, to learn. We had, uh, the Soviet experience, obviously from 79 to, to 89, we had three British experiences, uh, okay. 1800s into the early 1900s. You didn't even have to go back to, to Genghis Khan or Alexander the Great. We had plenty of stuff that was much more recent. Um, and all we needed to do was take a breath and spend some time in the pages of history and do our best to understand the nature of the conflict in which we were about to engage our forces. And we fell prey, I think, to that imperial hubris and people at these senior levels who um, have this intellectual inertia and uh, that that intellectual inertia and that imperial hubris go hand in hand, I think, and got us to where we are today. Uh, no fault of the person who's on the ground there carrying the rifle, doing the job, but it's a uh, it's it's tough to watch. That's for sure. Very tough. Yeah, I'd to love watch. to be I'd love to be in a hot debrief. What worked? What didn't? And what would we do differently? <laughs> I'm wor I'm very worried that those uh, that those debriefs might not go so well, and we might not take these lessons and apply them going forward. Because at those senior levels, you know, I just uh, you see too many of those senior level leaders getting out and then going sitting on the boards of companies tied to the defense industry or, or whatever else. And uh, especially with with turnover being in a place for those senior level officers, two years, maybe three, but mostly two years, and then to turn over to the next guy, two years, and you fight, fight those same same two years over and over again throughout the last 20. And it's, uh, yeah, it's tough. It's tough to watch. But uh, when there's people like you who have that ground level, like you understand, especially what you're doing after you, you're you in the military. I mean, when you're in yeah. it, yes, it's super, so important to understand that as well because it makes you a better better battlefield leader. 
But then when you get out and you're doing more of that, that low viz type of, of thing, and you really need to understand the culture then, because, uh, yeah. it, cause if you don't, that's mission failure for you right there tactically at that time and place. And, yeah. uh, and, and for you to understand what's going on in Benghazi, what's been, what's going on in, in Somalia, what's going on in, in Afghanistan, all the, and understand how important the local mm-hmm. uh, perspective is to all these and how local doesn't mean one thing. It could mean multiple factions and multiple tribes and, and, uh, and uh, all these things and loyalty and, and, and things like that, that we think are the same, this have the same definition across cultures might not. Um, when viewed through another lens. So, uh, man, I wish we had, I wish we had guys like you up at the senior levels doing some advising and that senior level people would listen because, I mean, uh, that, that kind of expertise and background is invaluable. Yeah. And I, and I think, you know, we, we, obviously we know from the middle, it's not just the cultures and the locals, it's your enemy. You understand your enemies and respect your en- your enemy. Don't underestimate your enemy. And I think that's what's happened here. I mean, they've underestimated our, our enemy rather than respect. Yeah. Oh, incredible. Incredible. And, uh, so are you going to do any writing about, uh, like, let's say take a breath, another, uh, six months, a year, you're going to write another book about the Nile or write about maybe some security, uh, situations, yeah. or maybe have it similar to this one where we're maybe some lessons learned or what your perspective in on, on what happened in Afghanistan and then leading into the Nile and that adventure that's coming up this next year. What's, uh, what's the plan for, uh, for more books going forward? Yeah, the plan for more books. My wife's actually doing the book as well, you know, because obviously the feedback from the book, there's a lot of mention about my wife in there and, and you know, how does she, you know, how does she support, you know, because I, I genuinely believe that anyone can break a world record and it's not me being arrogant. You know, if someone's there running the businesses, paying the mortgage, looking after the family and things like that, and which what she does as well as get involved with the campaign directors, there's been a lot of attention to how does she do it? You know, how does she, how does she cope when I'm away? months on end and, and and things like that so alana's book will come out and it would almost follow up from from my book you know i'm governed by you know the official secrecy act on certain things she's not so she'll probably there'll be more exposure on certain things there but then the nile book yes you're right i'll then pick up on the nile and you know the spine of the book will be about the nile but again what i'm trying to promote with the nile is having worked all over africa this is going to be very much a different challenge compared to the bike ride. You know, it's a road you've got to get from A to B. Africa is a different continent completely. And again, people will only see on, um, on media about famine, war, and things like that, when really they're probably one of the most hospitable people I've ever met in Africa. They don't have much money, but they're always happy uh, and things like that. So the Nile is really going to promote those cultures in Africa and, and there will be you know, the, the, like I said, the spine will be about the Nile, but then there'll be break-offs to security jobs that I've done in and around Africa and what I've learned awesome. from that and how I've brought that into the challenge. Oh, that's very cool. I can't wait. And you're training right now. You're training on the kayak and getting ready. And When, when I can, unlike the bike ride, which is cardiovascular, that was cardiovascular. The, the kayaking is more technique. Okay. Um, you know, the, the Nile is everything from from flat to grade six waterfalls, most powerful waterfall in the world, Merchant Falls. But unlike the cycling community, which is vast, you know, this kayaking community have really come together and I'm working with some great kayakers in, in, um, in the U S Rush Sturges is a famous kayaker. You know, he's doing helping with my white water stuff. And I've got a, a, an ocean ski at Newport aquatic center. So any sort of time I get on the water. So it's more the technique rather than the actual, the, the physical fitness because unlike the bike ride the, the river's flowing you know so i start in rwanda 
start in Rwanda and finish in Egypt. So it's 4,280 miles. Um, so, you know, it's just having that mindset of just being able to just keep going each day. You know, I have a, I have a figure in my head of what, how I, of the timeline, you know, there yeah. is no, there is no timeline to beat because it's never been done before. So I have one in my head. I, I won't share that. Yeah. Um, but, um, but yeah, you know, I won't be, won't be far off doing 40 miles a day on the water, but there'll be days where you've got big white water and you won't be covering as much. And there'll be other days where you've just got, you know, just flat and it's flowing well. And there'll be days where you're just being held at borders. It's going to be incredible. I'm so excited. I mean, I love kayaking. I love river rafting. I grew up doing that sort of thing. And I always wanted to, uh, I think I read, it was either a book or I think it was an article maybe in high school. It talked about these guys that circumnavigated Iceland in sea kayaks. And I was always like, oh man, that would be so awesome. So I still bring that up every now and again to my wife. uh, And she's like, when are you going to fit that in? Um, But, uh, but I love the kayak. I love, love boating. I love all that. Um, So it's going to be a great adventure. It's going to be an amazing adventure. You're more than welcome to come along. Like I said, for this one is like I'm, you know, I'm working with Guinness World Records. There's loads of guidelines, stringent guidelines. You know, with the bike ride, it's very, you know, there's so much information they need, video footage, you know, um, signatures, everything, computer data. There's yeah. so much involved in it. But there's because there's stringent guidelines, you have to stick to those guidelines. You breach any of those guidelines, you don't get the record. Mm-hmm. So. No one's ever done the Nile before. So Guinness gave me their guidelines. And it's like the guidelines they'd taken from the Amazon. I was like, well, this is a different river completely. There's a civil war in South Sudan. There's crocodiles, there's hippos. <laughs> um, so actually, I then decided, well, it's never been done before. It's a world first. I'm not interested in the record. So if you take those guidelines away, you've got more of a bigger picture or opportunities when you're having to make those key decisions rather than being sort of funneled Oh, we have to do this because the guidelines are this, this, and this. You know, for example, I'm not allowed. I'm not allowed with the Guinness guidelines to go in any other boat other than the boats I've got. But hmm. it'd be great to get into a local boat with a fisherman and you know and try his out. So, right. so I actually took that away, which also then meant that people, if they wanted to come join me, they didn't feel pressured that I was he- I was going for this this wheel record. Um, so yeah, we're open up. So if, you, if oh, that's pretty cool. Calendar, you can come come join me, and we'll have a paddle. Oh man, that'd be awesome. Join you for a, for a little bit of that. I'm going to, I'm going to go get my maps out here later on and check out this, uh, this route, because that sounds absolutely incredible. Um, and, uh, and one thing you write in the book, which I thought was pretty cool that really resonated. And you wrote, uh, if you fail, think of all those smug faces telling you they knew that you would. And that's, yeah. uh, you know, that's pretty cool because, you know, you get that, uh, if you like, for me, I wanted to be a seal my whole life. And so you see, you, you see that look on people's faces, like, yeah, you're, you're not, you know, you're not going to make it. Or when you tell people you want to write a, write a book and get it published by a major New York publishing house, you get the same kind of look, uh, from, okay. from most people. Um, and, uh, so I love that you wrote that in there that really resonated with me. And, uh, and I think to anybody who wants to do something extraordinary in life, you yeah, can't, yeah. uh, let that bandwidth get taken up by all the doubters or anything like that. You can use it as fuel or like, Hey, what are the odds? Like what are the odds of you making it from, from the tip of South America all the way up to to Alaska? What are those odds of, of making it unscathed or making it in under a hundred days? Well, you know what? You can just, you can think about that and have it take up a lot of the bandwidth like this, or you can just yeah. be, no, oh, it's tough. Boom. And that's it. And then, you know what, yeah. that gives you, that fuels you up how tough it is to do all the work that you need to do to then get to that starting point in February and be able to start pedaling. Um, yeah. so, uh, so I love that you wrote that in the book. That was pretty cool. Yeah, no, it's, it's, and I think for me, like, you know, with big challenges like that, you know, if, if you looked at the, 
uh, you know, the, the full 114,000 miles, it just consumed me, you know. So for me, it's just breaking it down into manageable bite sizes. Because a lot of people nowadays, you know, if you if I was to tell someone, oh, you're going to do London Marathon next week, they'll tell me all the reasons why they can't rather than reasons why they can. So, mm. so for me, I, I just made sure I, I just I just looked at what I was doing that day. I didn't look at the next day or the next week. And mm. once you've got a day, you just tick that off and you just look at the next day. And that's what I did on selection. Six-month course, you know, I didn't look at badging day. I just, what do I need to do to get me to the start point tomorrow? So, and, and that's what I did. I just sort of took that mindset across and just, and also made sure there's a lot of people doing challenges and, and, you know, for example, they're like, I'm 10 miles behind today. I'll catch that up tomorrow. But you don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. You could have another bad day and like oh, yeah. 20, 30 miles behind. So I always made sure that I, I stayed on that bike for an extra 45 minutes or an hour. So I would, I, I'd hit the target. So you're in a good mindset or headspace going in the next day. And then, um, as I said, the worst position I was was 39 miles behind target. And then from then on, it was, it was, it was all good. But, um, but yeah, use that negative energy from others. Don't argue with them. There's no point. Nope. Use it as fuel. You know, my That's father it. telling me the last two minutes, you know, okay, that was yeah. my fuel and energy to prove him wrong. Being told I couldn't go SBS. Okay. And yeah. And, and so forth. So I just keep doing it. Yeah. A lot of guys in buds, they think of that in hell week and they think of Friday when it's still Sunday evening. And, uh, and they, you know, bring, ding, bring that bell. Uh, for me, I went evolution to evolution. So I'm like, okay, I can make it through the O course. Okay. What's next surf passage. Okay. I'll make it through that. But most guys who make it through tell me that they go meal to meal. Okay. I'm going to make it, uh, I'm going to make it to lunch. I'm going to make it to dinner. I'm going to make it to mid rats at midnight and I'm going to make it to breakfast. Um, but I did evolution to evolution. I needed to break it into smaller, smaller chunks, but, uh, yeah. but I think that's a good, good lesson for any, you know, for, for life in general, of course. But, uh, and this was pretty, pretty cool here, what you wrote in the beginning. Um, and you wrote a true special forces operator won't care what the public's opinion is of them. They only care that the public remain free to have that opinion. That's pretty cool. That was yeah. like right off the bat. I'm like, Oh man, this guy's awesome. So, uh, that was, uh, that was very cool. And then of course you say some very nice things about your wife all the way throughout this book. So I'm excited to have her on when her book comes out. Cause uh, yes. I want to ask her all the questions that you won't answer. Cause you're, uh, you're bound by the uh, official, what is it called? The official secrecy act. I'll see what I can get out of her. Yeah. So which is why obviously for me, I didn't disclose any of the, the SF, uh, you know, uh, tours, you know, and and it's more to protect their anonymity and and the fact that they're still operating now. Yeah. But there was plenty of other things to (laughs) obviously to fill this amazing book. So uh, very cool. I'm looking forward to, to the next one. I'm looking forward to following along on the, uh, the Nile and people can follow along with your training and everything else you have going on on Instagram and Facebook. Um, you're yeah. on there and that'll all be in the, in the show notes. And, um, as you get closer to, to launch and I'll, you know, do what I can put some stuff up there and let people know what yeah. you're, what you're up to. Cause it's, uh, it's an awesome adventure. It's an amazing, amazing journey. And I'm looking forward to, to following along. Excellent. No, thank you so much, Jack. Appreciate having me on. Oh man. Thank you so much. And, uh, yeah, good luck with everything. And hopefully we'll, uh, we'll meet up in person soon. Thank you to Navy Federal, presenting sponsor of the Danger Close podcast. I've been a member since 1996, since my first couple months in the military. Thank you guys for being on the journey with me. Navy Federal Credit Union is helping their members save when they purchase new homes. They have loan options and resources to make sure you get a great deal. 
Now Navy Federal will contribute $1,000 as a lender credit towards closing costs on your new home. Members also save on their monthly payments since there is no requirement for private mortgage insurance. Plus, Navy Federal offers low rates and fees so you can save even more. Navy Federal mortgage experts can help you choose the best option for you, making the home loan process a smooth experience. Learn more at NavyFederal.org. Our members are the mission. Insured by NCUA, equal housing lender. Qualifying members with purchase mortgage applications after 916-22 may receive up to $1,000 towards actual closing costs applied at closing with no cash back and subject to loan program maximum contribution limits. Terms subject to change. Ask your loan officer for details. Navy Federal. I want to thank my friends at Black Rifle Coffee for sponsoring the Danger Close podcast. I've been a huge fan for the longest time. Drink Black Rifle Coffee every day. And if you keep your eyes peeled, you will notice that perhaps Chris Pratt is wearing a Black Rifle Coffee t-shirt. Not unsimilar to this one in the Amazon series adaptation of The Terminal List. Now you can go to blackriflecoffee.com slash dangerclose and use code dangerclose 20 at checkout for 20% off your purchase and your first coffee club order. Black Rifle Coffee, America's Coffee, keep crushing. Thank you so much to Six Hour for jumping right on board out of the gate to make this podcast possible. Obviously, I am a huge SIG fan, having carried the P226 on every deployment downrange in the SEAL teams. Uh, but SIG was a supporter. They were friends well before uh, I was a New York Times bestselling author, uh, well before I even had an Instagram account or any social media presence whatsoever. So thank you guys all so much. Uh, Ron, Tom, Jason, everybody at SIG who gets up every day and continues to crush it and lead the way. SIG is always adapting. They're always at the forefront, whether it is firearms for citizens, whether it's firearms for our military, ammo, suppressors, optics, training, fire control units. They are doing it all, and they're always pushing, pushing that envelope and trying to do it better each and every day through innovation and adaptation, they crush. So thank you so much for that friendship and support. Uh, it will never be forgotten. Welcome to gear highlight portion of the danger close podcast. Today, I figured I'd just run down my everyday carry and it's weird calling it everyday carry because it's not the exact same things every day, although that's probably a good idea, but I'm not going to lie and tell you that every single day I carry the exact same things because I do switch it up from time to time. I will always have uh, two blades on me. And if you followed me for a while, you'll know one reserved just for fighting and the other is for opening packages and whatever else needs to needs to be done. But the one for fighting I know is always sharp and ready to rock. And I didn't just open a ton of packages or something like that with it. Uh, and then a pistol as well, of course, and then phone and watch and wallet. But um, I'll just run down what, uh, what I happen to have on me today. So uh, let's start with the pistol. So this, boom. Look at that. Yep, P365XL from SIG. So check that out. I've been carrying the 365 or the 365XL for a while now. Uh, this thing is 
beautiful. Uh, love carrying this. I think the 365 XL is, uh, if I had to choose between the two, if I only could get one, um, and I would probably pick this one up. Uh, absolutely love it. Very cool. You can go back, scroll down to my Instagram and see me taking this out of the box for the first time at Thunder Ranch and uh, plinking away at some targets. Some uh, were pretty far out there. But uh, very cool. I'm going to get this upgraded by the guys at Icarus Precision and uh, Parker Mountain Machine. And we're going to get this thing uh, set up and show you what uh, in a new video what uh, what you can do with these things. So very cool. So that is the pistol right there. Um, and ammo. Oh, this is uh, a bunch of different mags you can get for as well. This one holds 15. I put 14 in there. It seems to fit um, very nicely with 14 for me. So that is that. And I've been using the 365 V crown from SIG as well. So that's the, that's the ammo in there. Uh, what else here? Here we go. Little blade. So this is the one that I use for opening, uh, whatever needs to be opened or cut. Um, and this is uh, a new one. This is from SOG knives. And, uh, this is the terminus X R L T E. So a really cool, super light, feels great. Just got this a week or so ago and uh, really like it. The uh, SOG knives, of course, been around for, for a while. I remember being, uh, looking at them in uh, U.S. Cavalry Magazine back in high school and uh, seeing the SF uh, model and then the, uh, the SEAL Trident model that they had back then. And of course, now they have more than those two. And when I got to my first SEAL team, one of my first issued knives, other than the Mark I Motto Navy Dive Knife from Buds, was the SOG uh, Trident, that big one. And then later, a little later on, the SEAL Pup. So um, it's cool to have a, uh, a SOG blade back in my pocket. So very cool. Uh, let's see the other blade here, this one right here. So this is the Dynamis. And if you've been following me for a while, you know that, uh, I love this thing. And this is the one that's reserved just for fighting designed by my buddy, Dom Rasso. We were at SEAL Team 2 together, made by Daniel Winkler. And, uh, it's just a great feeling blade, but, uh, this one does not open packages, does, uh, does not, not cut uh, wire or twine or do those kind of tasks. This one is just reserved for fighting if need be. So that is that. And then the, uh, the sheath for it is really cool because you don't need to go over a belt with this. So right there, you can put that on board shorts. You can put that on whatever. I'm not sure if you can see, um, that clip right there, but, uh, that can go, you don't need to put it over a belt is the point. And it does stay, uh, stay there when you draw that blade. So very cool. That's from Dynamis Alliance. All right. What else do I have here? Oh, the belt before I forget it. Also from Dynamis Alliance. And that is, yeah, there's a couple secrets to this belt, but uh, you can go on Dom Rosso, uh, the Dynamis Alliance uh, YouTube and check those out. So that's the, that's the belt. And when Dom initially gave this to me, I thought it was going to be too flimsy because I'd had a bunch of belts in the past that were a little stiffer. But uh, once I put this on, it is awesome and has had no trouble over the years. As I've been using this for a long time. Um, uh carrying my holster and pistol and everything else. There's a couple secrets here. I'll give a couple away right now, but not all of them. So uh, a little spot for something in the back. Uh, and then up here, you have a spot for some change and uh, some money right there. But uh, awesome belt. Absolutely love it. This has been my daily belt for, gosh, 20, I'm going to say from 2014, maybe 2015, uh, whenever these first came out. So uh, absolutely love that belt. Uh, let's see. Holster. Yep. So 
This is from Black Point Tactical. And I've been using these since I want to say 2016 or 2017. Um, but this is the mini wing uh, from the guys at Black Point Tactical. And what I love about this, well, I like that the leather. Um, they come in metal clips here or plastic. Um, but what I really love is it's so clearly marked. If you have more than one pistol, uh, which I may, um, then you you know right away if you have the right uh, holster. So you're not wasting wasting time guessing if you have the right one. If you have pistols of similar size. So anyway, Black Point Tactical, awesome. What else? Here we go. Phone, of course, and wallet. So look at that cross tomahawks wallet. Available if you go to officialjackcar.com, you can go to the gear section in the upper right hand corner, click on that, or you can just go to Jack Car USA and uh, yeah, leather wallet made in the USA uh, out in Minnesota. Got the cross tomahawks there, little bone frog in the corner over there, and yeah, awesome wallet. Super happy with how those came out. Uh, what else? Little light. So this is the uh, Streamlight Stylus Pro. And what I like about this is that if you lose it, you're not going to have a heart attack because it's not going to break the bank. Um, so sometimes those expensive lights, if you lose them um, or they break, then you're, yeah, <laughs> you're thinking about it. If you lose this one, it falls out of your pocket. You know, it's not the end of the world, but uh, definitely like having a light on me as well. Okay, that is that. And then I'm in my backpack, I'll have a, a headlamp or two. And this one is the old Petzl. Uh, they have a new version of this, but I really like these, these old ones. So I have a couple. Um, so yeah, I always have this in my backpack or, or two of those in my backpack. And then also a little med kit right here in my backpack. This is from dark angel medical. Uh, I got the shears right here. I have the tourniquet right here. I added an, uh, epi pin there and then put a couple other things in here as well. So I should probably have a tourniquet on me, but at all times, but I'm not going to lie to you and pretend that I walk around with one when I, when I don't all the time, but, uh, don't tell anybody I should, you should, but I don't. So I'm not going to pretend like I do. So, but I do have this in my back, in my backpack at, uh, at all times. And then what I, what else I have in there is books. So if you see me walking around, uh, please come over, say hello. And usually I have a couple books in my backpack and a pen, and I'd be more than happy to, to sign them for you if you see me wandering through an airport or around town or whatever else. So um, just uh, as a way to say thank you, because it's sincerely appreciated. So that is a little everyday carry. Awesome. Thank you for tuning in to the Danger Close podcast, an Ironclad original presented by Navy Federal Credit Union. To find out more about Dean Stott, go to deanstott.com. That's S-T-O-T-T. And be sure to follow him on the social channels as well and catch him on SAS Australia Who Dares Wins. You can follow me on the social channels at Jack Carr USA. Officialjackcar.com is the website. You can sign up for the newsletter there and click on shop for the merch. And until next time, take care out there. Stay safe, be strong, keep fighting. In case you missed it on a recent episode of Danger Close, an Ironclad original.
Jack Carr sat down with former presidential candidate Tulsi Gabbard. Set aside all the labels. Mm. You know, oh, well, because I've been getting asked this a lot. Like, well, are you left or are you right? Are you progressive or are you conservative? What are box you... do you fit in? Which exactly, box do you check? Completely. Are you an enemy or right, right. An How, Like, what filter should I use when I'm looking at you? And, like, I've always been an independent-minded person. Mm. Always. Be sure to check out the full interview wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you.